Friday, May 40 here, and here's how I would decode Joe Biden's foreign policy, right? He has a vastly exaggerated sense of his own capabilities and of his administration's capabilities and of America's capabilities, and that's the primary reason I believe that he keeps entangling us in all these disastrous foreign adventures, right? He's gotten us into a disaster in Ukraine, which has cost the lives of tens of thousands of Ukrainians, just a completely unnecessary war. He has put America right in the middle of the Israel versus Arab conflict, and he's been overly provocative with regard to Taiwan. And so we are up the edge of all these disastrous conflicts. And I think I get the, the primary reason, all right? And the, because I share some of these same, same problems, these same tendencies, that's this you know, vastly exaggerated sense of one's own abilities, all right? Now, I, I do have abilities, all right? There are some areas where I'm top 1%, all right? I'm probably better read than 99% of people. I'm probably, there are some areas where I'm, uh, you know, better writer than 99% of people, but I've consistently gone through life with a vastly exaggerated sense of my own abilities. And Joe Biden, for for whatever reason, he thinks he's some major foreign policy thinker. And in some ways, he's right in that with regard to Afghanistan, Joe Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan. And I believe that was the, the right policy to follow. Joe Biden counseled Barack Obama against surging in Afghanistan back in 2009. Again, I think that was correct. So Joe Biden has been right at times, but now with his disastrous involvement of us in Ukraine and uh, in in Israel in the fight with Hamas and now Hezbollah, the, the probably the most important news article that uh, I, I've read in the last uh, 48 hours is from the Financial Times talking about how Israel warns it can no longer accept Hezbollah on its border. Right? Hezbollah is this Iranian-backed Shia militia that is 10 times as capable, 10 times as disciplined, 10 times as formidable a force as Hamas. And now Financial Times reports Israel's national security advisor warned that Israel can no longer accept the presence of Hezbollah forces on its northern border and said it will have to act if they continue to pose a threat. Now, Hezbollah's got about 150,000 rockets, thousands of which can reach anywhere in Israel. So if Hezbollah decides to let its rockets go, you know, hundreds if not thousands of Israelis will die within, within hours. So tensions between Israel and the powerful Iran-backed Lebanese militant group have been running high since the war between Israel and Hamas erupted two months ago. Now, Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy but it has its own agency. It does not solely take direction from Iran. It's an interesting question, given that the United States has moved such considerable military force to the Middle East, why we have not already attacked Iran, but it does appear that uh, the Biden administration is very eager to, for a direct war with Iran. So far, despite the free, frequent exchanges, which have led to casualties on both sides, Israel and Hezbollah have so far avoided being drawn into a full-blown conflict, but uh, Israel's foreign minister said yesterday that Israel could not accept the situation in which residents of Israel's north, who were evacuated in the early weeks of the war, were afraid to return to their homes as they feared Hezbollah's elite Radwan force could launch a cross-border attack on the north of Israel as Hamas did in the south. That's correct. So Israel's had to evacuate about 200,000 of its citizens from the south and the north of the country because it does not feel that it can adequately protect them, and no nation state 
would uh, sit back and allow a, a powerful threat on its borders, uh, particularly a powerful threat that has repeatedly attacked it, like Hezbollah. So here's the exact wording from Israel's foreign minister. We can no longer accept the Radwan force sitting on the border. The Israeli public understand the situation in the north needs to change, and it will change. Hezbollah agrees to change it diplomatically. That's good. If not, we will have to act. We will have to ensure that the situation in the north is different. Wow. So Israel right now is cleaning up. Hamas seems to be making considerable advances. Uh, dozens of Hamas fighters have recently surrendered. Eventually, though, Israel is going to turn its primary attention not to the south and to Gaza, but to the north and Hezbollah, and uh, it may well be forced into a two-front war. Uh, let's get a little theory here from the Duran. Let's talk about a tweet from Tucker Carlson connected to Project Ukraine and Lloyd Austin and the funding to Project Ukraine. Let me read you what uh, Tucker Carlson posted on Twitter X. The Biden administration is openly threatening Americans over Ukraine. In a classified briefing in the House yesterday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin informed members that if they don't appropriate more money for Zelensky, quote, we'll send your uncles, cousins, and sons to fight Russia, end quote. Then Tucker says, pay the oligarchs or we'll kill your kids. And uh, this tweet has, uh, has received quite a lot of uh, attention. Elon Musk replied, he really said this, question mark. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy also uh, chimed in on this uh, this post from Tucker Carlson. I have no doubt that this is true. This this absolutely uh, sounds like something the Biden White House or Lloyd Austin would uh, would do or say to Congress because there is just a general freak out, a general panic that is gripping the Biden White House from Biden to Austin to Blinken to Kirby. So I have no doubt that Austin told Congress, if you don't give money to Project Ukraine, then our sons and daughters and cousins are going to have to fight the Russians because the narrative is that once Russia wins in Ukraine, then they're going to invade all of all of Europe, all of NATO. That's that's the narrative, and they've actually said this in the past. They've kind of circled back around to this uh, to this narrative about Russia invading Europe and recreating the Tsar Empire or the Soviet Union, or even going beyond that, capturing France or something like that. So um, this is a narrative that they've recycled. I have no doubt that this is true, but I don't think it's a it's a shocking revelation. It sounds like something Lloyd Austin would absolutely say to Congress in order to try and get them to to pour money to Project Ukraine. Just just one final note. Three, four days ago, Austin was saying that Congress should give money to Ukraine because it would be good for American jobs. So we've gone from good to American jobs to invading Europe. Anyway, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think most likely it was said. I mean, we've had some indirect confirmations about the kind of things that he was saying. I mean, there's, uh, there's a, one of the people who was there, who was a, a, a House Foreign Affairs chairman, Michael McCall. <coughs> he said that... Um, Austin said to the Congress people that it was very likely if they didn't ask funding for you know, Ukraine, very likely that it would lead to U.S. troops fighting a war in Europe. If this is a direct quote now, if Vladimir Putin takes over Ukraine, he'll get Moldova, Georgia, then maybe the Baltics. And a couple of days ago, there was an article in the Financial Times, which Gideon Rackman, who's a very well connected journalist, said that people in the U.S., uh, in the government, in the U.S. government, in the offices in the U.S. government are now worried that by the end of 2024, Putin might be threatening the Baltic states. And then we had John Kirby also talking about these flesh-creeping things, you know, that Putin's appetite will grow with the eating if he takes Ukraine and uh, he'll be able to move on and advance into all kinds of other places. So, you know... Rustin Shackleford has a good question in the chat. wonder what the world would look like if neocons did not exist. So I think the United States would have a more distant more normal relationship with Israel. I don't think we would have invaded Iraq in 2003. We would not have occupied Afghanistan, possibly not even invaded Afghanistan in 2001. So I think the United States would have saved trillions of dollars 
end thousands of American lives and be in a much you know, safer and stronger position in the world if there was not this uh, formidable neoconservative lobby. I, I think that Austin did say it, and I think it's also very much of a piece. I mean, it's, it's, it, if you watch that programme um, that we did um, uh, with Colonel, Wilkins, uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkinson, who was Colin Powell's um, chief, of, uh, chief of staff, and we did on the Duran, uh, Wilkinson said he gave, an, he gave a sense of what these people are like to deal with in interpersonal reactions. When they're thwarted, they become extremely angry. I mean, there is no, uh, uh, hell hath no fury than a neocon scorned, if I can say it like that. So, I mean, I, I think this is exactly what happened. What, what it tells me is that the administration's narrative is coming up against a lot of resistance. And that, as you might expect, you know, given that he is a neocon, he lost his temper. And I think other people in the administration are losing their temper. But it's clear now that this is becoming an issue in American domestic politics, that there's a strong group of people in the Republican Party who are outright opposed to further funding from Ukraine. There was a vote in the Senate where the Senate... The Republicans may very well hold their ground and refuse further funding of Ukraine, which even a couple of weeks ago seemed unthinkable. All right, uh, the the two the two sides were basically similarly supportive of funding Ukraine, but now because of Biden's blunders, meaning because he's not willing to at least allocate some money to defending our own southern border, Republicans may well dig in their heels and not fund Ukraine, which will probably bring a very swift end to the conflict. And uh, I think Republicans are seeing how disastrously all this is playing out for Biden's domestic political fortunes. Refused to move forward with a procedural motion for funding for Ukraine. One uh, uh, senator who is generally aligned with the Democrats, he's an independent from Vermont, voted with the Republicans against further funding for Ukraine. I personally believe that eventually, because... To be straightforward about it, most people in Congress are either outright neocons or people who generally accept neocon narratives. They will authorize some funding for you. And Rustin adds, although Wilsonian, referring to the president during World War One, the American president during World War One, Wilsonian wars for democracy has been a feeling in our at least for the last hundred years. Yeah, but a lot of that is rhetoric. All right, the United States was late entering both World War One and World War Two. And they had massive gains in, in power with relatively little sacrifice compared to what the you know, starting nations in these conflicts had to pay. And so America has often conducted itself ruthlessly while using pro-democracy rhetoric. So rhetoric is one thing. Actions are another. What, what makes neoconservatives different from just Wilsonians is that they pro- Propose, you know, more wars, more use of American force overseas than even uh, Wilsonians wanting to promote democracy. A lot of Wilsonians wanting to promote de- Woodrow Wilson was the president during World War One. A lot of Wilsonians talk about promoting democracy. It's not nearly as reckless as the neoconservative agenda to, you know, fight multiple wars at the same time. Okay. But what it shows is that there is a huge amount of resistance now within Congress to this issue. And of course, when we see this new version of the domino theory um, discredited, when um, you know the Russians win in Ukraine, and as everybody now expects that they will, when the, you know, the Russians finally defeat um, the Ukraine, and none of these terrifying things that we're hearing about actually happens, well, then at that point, all of these people will try and 
forget the fact that they ever said these things. The other thing I would say about this particular episode is that, to my mind, the really big thing, the thing that's really worrying the administration, more even than the fall of Ukraine, is the uh, fear of what will happen in the election. And again, going back to that article by Gideon Rapp. Right. So the, the Biden administration wants to be reelected. And so a lot of our showy support for Ukraine and for Taiwan and for Israel is based on the Biden administration's theories on what Joe Biden needs to do to become more popular and get reelected, even though these interventions are not in America's best interests. There was apparently people telling him from within the Democratic Party, within the DNC, that they're worried that unless this funding gets through, then in January, people will be starting to talk about Joe Biden as the man who lost Ukraine. And that's what they really want to avoid. They Right. We, we didn't need a war in Ukraine to begin with if we hadn't been arming Ukraine the last few years, trying to bring it into NATO uh, de facto in addition to de jure. Right. We wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, Alexander Mercurius on his show last night had some additional thoughts. Be prepared to attack. It's clear that despite being asked by members of the House of Representatives from the Republican caucus, Lloyd Austin, however, was unable to come up with any strategy for a potential victory in Ukraine. And it seems that the meeting became increasingly acrimonious. And this comment that Lloyd Austin made, and it seems he did make it, appears to have been made in exhaustion. And the, the comment was that if we don't subsidize Ukraine, that American boys will have to go fight Russia in Europe. ...and anger. And, of course, its only effect was to make the Republican Congress people angry as well. And of course, when people start to become angry, they become more stubborn. And my sense is that the administration's attempts to try to persuade the Congress people to change their stance on aid for Ukraine, it might have misfired. It might have made that opposition stronger. And just an extraordinary comment here from Joe Biden. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to speak to you today about an urgent responsibility the Congress has to uphold the national security needs of the United States, and quite frankly, of our partners as well. <clears throat> this cannot wait. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. While Congress, Republicans in Congress, are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for, and abandon our global leadership, <clears throat> not just to Ukraine, but beyond that. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. It's important to see the long run here. He's going to keep going. He's made that pretty clear. If Putin attacks a NATO ally, then we'll have something that we don't seek and that we don't have today. American troops fighting Russian troops. American troops fighting Russian troops if he moves into other parts of NATO. Extreme Republicans are playing chicken with our national security, holding Ukraine's funding hostage to their extreme partisan border policies. And now they're willing to literally kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield and damage our national security in the process. Look, I know we have our divisions at home. Let's get past them. This is critical. Petty, partisan, angry politics can't get in the way of our responsibility as a leading nation in the world. We can't let Putin win. Say it again. We can't let Putin win. 
It's in our overwhelming national interest and the international interest of all our friends. Yeah, just uh, absurd comments. There's, there's no evidence that uh, Putin is planning to take all of Ukraine, let alone to go into uh, other nations, including NATO nations. It's the, the discredited domino theory. Rather than weaker, which, of course, calls into doubt the entire enterprise. We know that we can't. There's going to be five working days left before Congress rises on Friday. Of course, that's always assuming that Mike Johnson sticks to his position that Congress will indeed rise next Friday. The British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, once said that a week is a long time in politics. So So when have we heard about the domino theory before? That was an argument used to support our intervention in Vietnam. Now, I think our intervention in South Korea may very well have been in America's best interests, right? America does have an interest in maintaining alliances. Probably the most vulnerable we ever got vis-a-vis the Soviet Union was when we let our defense spending go after about 1946 until about uh, 1950. The invasion of South Korea woke us up to a renewed defensive commitment. And so I think repelling that invasion, preserving South Korea, is probably in America's best interest. It was probably worth the 50 thousand plus American lives to preserve that that country, South Korea, that ally, all right, instead of allowing the Soviet communists through their proxies to keep pushing for, for more and more territory. Now, on the other hand, I think the Vietnam intervention was miscalculated and it was in part sold on domino theory that if we allow the communists to take Vietnam, that next they'll take Thailand and they'll just keep marching. In reality, as a regime overextends itself, all right, it gets into trouble and it malfunctions and it it is not in their own best interest to infinitely extend itself because when you extend yourself too far, you become, by definition, overextended and you become more vulnerable. We see the Soviet Union falling into that trap when they invaded Afghanistan. That became a, an enormous debacle that, that played a large role in the destruction of both the Soviet Union and Russia as a great power. So it's possible that there might be a big turnaround in thinking on the part of Republican Congress people over the course of this week. But I have to say, at the moment, I don't see why that shift on the part of Congress Republicans should take place. From their perspective, which is ultimately, I would have assumed, an electoral one, things for the moment appear to be going their way. The president's uh, ratings are falling. The position the Republican Congress people are taking seems to be generally supported amongst uh, um, the the American people. And the president has just suffered a major personal blow. And a sign of how serious for him it is, is provided by the fact that the media, I notice, is largely ignoring it. They're Except for Fox News, where it's the dominant story the past few days. Pretending that basically, or they're acting as if it didn't happen, or as if it isn't particularly important. And that blow is that the president's son has now been indicted. There's apparently four, nine different charges. They appear to be, so far as I can tell, essentially about tax evasion and fraud. I'm not going to analyse the charges in detail, certainly not in this programme. I'm not going to discuss the outcome of any possible legal proceedings... I would simply say that the president's son, like everyone else who is 
the subject of an indictment is, indi is entitled to the presumption of innocence as everyone else in that kind of situation. Yeah, of course. So why do we still have troops in South Korea to act as a tripwire to determine to deter China, China's aggression? Because as China, let's say China becomes a regional hegemon, the United States is a hegemon in the Americas, right? There is no other great power with a military base in the Americas. That allows America then to feel free to roam all over the globe. If China became a regional hegemon as the U.S. is a regional hegemon, then China would feel free to roam. And that's why the United States wants to contain the rise of China. Part of that strategy is maintaining an independent South Korea and enlisting South Korea and Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, Australia in efforts to try to control the rise and expansion of China. Should be. But of course, we're not here talking about, about um, simple legal process because the person indicted is the president's son. There have been claims that the president himself is connected to his son's business activities. There have been reports in the media. You can find a lot of detail about all of this, by the way, on Jonathan Turley's blog, Res Ipsa Loquitur. There's reports that some of the funds that um, the son was handling found their way to the president himself, which is indicative, even if it is not definitive of anything very much. But I can't imagine that this isn't going to play badly for the president in the forthcoming election. And beyond that, of course, there is the issue of what personal effect it will have on the president that his son is now being indicted in this particular way. It will be. OK, Josh Randall raises a very strong challenge. He says, I disavow Luke's choice of stream time. Formal disavowal. He's raising his disavowal to the formal level. In fact, formidable, formidable challenge. Well, this is what happened. I, I woke up about midnight and I was thinking about historian Robert Kagan. And I'm sure we all here have had the experience of like waking up in the middle of the, the night concerned about historian Robert Kagan. So Robert Kagan has been publishing essays warning about Trump will become a dictator if he is reelected in, in 2024. And I, I woke up at midnight and I thought, wait, wasn't Victoria, isn't Victoria Newland his wife? And then I, I got up and, and I, I wrote down, you know, investigate, isn't Victoria Newland his wife? Victoria Newland was the American diplomat who was largely overseeing the 2013-2014 Ukraine rebellion against its democratically elected pro-Russian president. And she was taped on a phone call making all sorts of remarks about how Ukraine should operate. And she said, uh, you know, F the EU. And, and I thought, isn't Robert, isn't, uh, isn't Robert Kagan, isn't he some major neocon? Yeah. And uh, let's Official, see talking this. about diplomatic efforts in Ukraine, the last thing you want to do is drop your guard. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it. And, you know, f*** the EU. But that is exactly what reportedly happened between US Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and US Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt. The exchange has since surfaced online, including the crude swipe at the European Union. The audio clip of a woman and man, said to be Newland and Pyatt, hears them discussing strategies to work with the three main opposition figures. 
I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. In terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Boak and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. There is a suggestion for Newland to contact Klitschko directly to play to his top dog sensibilities. Okay, so just a disastrous audio leak, probably orchestrated by the Russians from this phone call. This is Victoria Newland, husband's Robert Kagan, and about 3.15 this morning, I said, I- I'm getting up, I've got to go investigate this. And I-, I looked it up, and Robert Kagan is indeed this this major neocon agitator, and his wife is now... Uh, under secretary to Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. And so she's just been all over this Ukraine mess for, for approximately 10 years now, though she resigned during the Trump administration. And, and so I thought, I got I to gotta get up. I got to stream about this. And I, I just couldn't, couldn't wait for, for a more polite hour. Let's have a look at the chat. Uh, there's a comment. It wasn't a good idea to ban Japan from having a navy. Japan has a formidable navy, right? Japan's deep water navy is far more formidable and efficient and effective th- than China's. So I'm not sure where I got the idea that we, we ban Japan from having a navy. Japan has an incredible navy. And Josh says, did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone has woken me up at midnight many times? I assure you, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Uh, the many bases I have for that is that no group would ever hire someone as mentally unstable as uh, Lee Harvey Oswald to act for them, right? That would just be, that would be just a level of recklessness that I don't think the CIA or the mafia would, or, or any, any group would ever engage in. Okay, a little bit more here from Alexander McCurris. A major distraction for him, at the very least, and to my way of thinking, by the way, it further calls into question whether he should be standing for the presidency in this in these sort of circumstances at all. But anyway, that's another topic for another day. So, given the, given given that this is so, given that the military situation in Ukraine is becoming increasingly bad, given that politically speaking, so I just discovered the Duran and Alexander Makuris about a month ago because I heard uh, John J. Mearsheimer say that he listens to this guy Alexander Makuris every every day. Now, I notice on archives of their, their podcast that they have some you know, quite nutty figures on. So there, there could be some absolutely devastating critiques of this man in particular, Alexander Makuras, or of the Duran podcast in general that I'm simply unaware of at this point. But right now, I just find him a refreshing voice articulating points of view that I don't hear much in the, the mainstream media and that I think deserve an airing. Uh, Later today, I might find, you know, devastating decoding information about these guys. But for now, I I appreciate their perspective. The administration seems to be in deep difficulties and worsening difficulties, given that Speaker Johnson has again been talking about possible impeachment proceedings against the president himself, given that 
um, the stance the Republicans in Congress are taking seem to be generally supported by the American people. Why would the Republicans over the next five days want to change their stance? Now, I'm not saying that they won't. In politics, as I said, many things happen. But I would, I'm starting to think, especially after the reports that I've seen of what actually happened in Congress last week, the Lloyd Austin exchange in particular, I'm starting to think that Republican hostility to the further funding of this war has now hardened and that it is becoming, um, it's becoming. So chat says if uh, Japan has a formidable Navy, then let Japan use it to contain China's projection eastward. Well, we are Japan's the most important American ally. So Australia is America's closest ally, but Japan is America's most important ally, particularly with regard to defending Taiwan. So there is a window of American weakness and Chinese strength to attack and take over Taiwan and extend itself past the first island chain and keep extending itself into the Pacific Ocean, all right, and keep dominating its area. So right now, China's kind of bottled up by Taiwan and American alliances. If China takes Taiwan, it will show many American allies that America's a paper tiger and they won't be nearly as likely to form alliances and sacrifice for an alliance with the United States if the U.S. allows Taiwan to be taken down. So there's a, a window of vulnerability right now, and we, we badly need Japan in the fight to try to protect Taiwan for the next 10 years. Irresistible. That, in turn, ought to ring alarm bells in Kiev and the political leadership there needs to start thinking very carefully, something which I admit they've shown little sign of being able to do about their own prospects. If US aid is indeed cut off, if Ukraine ceases to receive the weapons and equipment that they have been receiving from the United States, and already that has been, the amount of that has been declining, it's apparently now reduced to a trickle, and the same is the case from Europe. If the So I'm basing that analysis on this book, which I just finished reading, came out last year, Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China by Hal Brands and Michael Beckley. Aid from the United States, the military aid is cut off. If the economic aid is cut off also, and that is also starting to look like a real possibility, the United States seems most unlikely to continue to fund Ukraine in any form if military aid is cut off. And as for the European Union, they're having real difficulties at the moment, agreeing on their 50 billion euro uh, package for Ukraine for next year. The Hungarians and the Slovaks having made clear their own um, essential opposition to this. Well, if that is indeed so, then it becomes increasingly clear that their prospects, already bleak, are going to become more bleak still. They, without financial support from the West, how do they keep their army, their police force, their civil service, the pensioners, the people on welfare systems, the university professors, the teachers, or Yes, very tough times coming up for Ukraine, but probably best for the United States to get out of this conflict if that is at all possible. All right, here's a little bit more on Gaza. Predicting for months, we have seen another battle at the UN Security Council over the Gaza situation. And importantly, on this occasion, this demand that the Security Council heard yesterday, last night, came not from a member state, but from the UN Secretary General, Mr. Guterres, 
he made a request that the Security Council meet under Chapter 99 of the UN Charter on the basis that he, as UN Secretary General, now perceives a threat to peace from the situation in Gaza and the Middle East. That opened the way for the United Arab Emirates to make, to propose a draft resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian and extended humanitarian pause, in other words, a ceasefire. The draft resolution also demanded immediate and unconditional release of all hostages, as well as humanitarian ac access to, to Gaza. The Security Council meeting was dominated by a passionate submission by UN Secretary General Guterres, who spoke about a catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza. And, however, perhaps the most important comments of all were made by the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates, Mohammed Issa Abu Shahab, who noted that the resolution that his country had, be, had proposed, the one that sought a ceasefire, received co-sponsorship from at least 97 member states, UN member states, within 24 hours. Gives us a sense of the extent to which international opinion is now building. And the United States vetoed the resolution. And in doing so, it was abandoned by all its allies. Britain abstained, citing the fact that the resolution didn't criticise Hamas. An extremely weak speech, by the way, by the British representative. All of the other countries who are allies of the United States, Japan, Albania, France, um, Ecuador, <laughs> they all voted, Switzerland, they all voted to support this resolution. And the United States was left alone, vetoing it. Now, that of course has happened many times before in the past, but already there are criticisms that by vetoing resolutions of this nature, the United States is becoming an accessory to the war crimes that many states are now saying are taking place. So right now, it looks to the world, whatever Israel does in Gaza, all right, the, the United States is held accountable that U.S. and Israel are essentially regarded by much of the world as co-belligerents in Gaza. And so if uh, Israel kills too many civilians, right, if Israel gets stuck down into some kind of quagmire, right, if there's just a bloody mess in Gaza, right, the United States is held equally responsible in the eyes of much of the world as Israel, the actual, you know, active party, because the United States is providing, you know, moral support, financial support, uh, arms support to Israel. And Joe Biden went over there, hugged Bibi Netanyahu. So unnecessary U.S. involvement, just a disastrous trip by Biden to Israel. The more support that uh, America gives Israel, then the more Israel's actions will reflect on America. And different countries have different interests, right? The interests of Israel are not identical to the interests of the United States. And I have some sympathy for the argument, hey, Israel is the one democracy in the, the Middle East. We, we should uh, support it against the you know, sea of dictatorships that surround it. And I think there's, there's something to that. But there are varying levels of support. And the ham-fisted, blatant... You know, unnecessarily provocative way that the United States has stood with Israel in this conflict is not serving the U.S. well in the eyes of much of the world, precipitating who knows how many more 9-11-style attacks on the, on the United States of America. And why have we so far abstained from bombing Iran? Because the U.S. has shifted such significant military assets to the Middle East. I think in part, 
we have those assets there. If Hezbollah goes into an all-out attack on Israel, right, and Israel's forced to fight a two-front war, the Biden administration wants to have American military assets and aircraft carriers there to to protect Israel and to fight against Hezbollah. So that's one way the United States could get directly militarily involved in this conflict. The other way, and I think much of the Biden administration is leaning in this direction, as much of the neoconservative movements have wandered for decades, there is considerable support within the Biden administration for an all-out direct attack on Iran. Why has it not happened yet? This is the best explanation I've heard yet. This is from the... Duran podcast once again three days ago. They found that the Saudis and uh, uh, were not going to shift their policies. Uh, they were not going to support this strike. Right. So I think the Biden administration was eager for a direct attack on Iran. But then Iran is Shia. All right. Saudi Arabia has been a longtime enemy of Iran. It is Sunni. And so the Biden administration thought that they could gather considerable Sunni support for a direct attack on Iran's Shia regime, and they've been disappointed. Wars. He says about how they were planning seven wars at the time when he was serving in the government and how rude and impossible they are to deal with on a personal basis. So these are the people who are still there in the administration. They completely misjudged the international reaction. They found that the Saudis and uh, uh, were not going to shift their policies. Uh, they were not going to support this strike on Iran, that they're uh, committed to the rapprochement with Iran. They found that the Egyptians were not prepared to play along, nor was the King of Jordan. They found the Arab world uniting um, against these disastrous plans. And they also found that the international community was, you know, the, the global, the, you know, the global south, everyone else was uniting against these plans also. And last but not least, they found that the Democratic Party's coalition within the United States was fracturing. So they have, they had to stop, they had to stop their planning even as all the pieces that they sort of deployed on the chessboard were still in motion. So we still get all of these massive military deployments taking place, but increasingly looking as if they are really serving no actual purpose anymore. And of course, we also see the Israelis pressing on with their campaign in Gaza, which to reiterate again, they were given the green light to do. And the US government, the administration, is now having switched this on, is fighting it all but impossible without experiencing significant political damage in the US to simply switch it off again. So this is this is this is why they're caught in the way that exactly in the way that you describe. Yeah. And uh, we're already getting reports of, of the damage on. Uh... OK, that that strikes me as a good explanation as any for why the United States hasn't already directly started uh, bombing Iran. Right. Interesting article in The New York Times yesterday. Talk of a Trump dictatorship charges the American political debate. Former President Donald J. Trump and his allies are not doing much to reassure those worried about his autocratic instincts. If anything, they seem to be leaning into the predictions. Peter Baker writes, when a historian wrote an essay the other day warning that the election of former President Donald J. Trump next year could lead to a dictatorship, one of Mr. Trump's allies quickly responded by calling for the historian to be sent to prison. Almost sounds like a parody. The response to concerns about dictatorship is to prosecute the author. But Mr. Trump and his allies are not going out of their way to reassure those worried about what a new term would bring by firmly rejecting the dictatorship charge. If anything, they seem to be leaning into it. And I, I just have a hard time taking these dictatorship charges seriously, just like my mind would, would be unable 
to pay attention for long to the Russiagate charges that dominated American news media between January 2017 and uh, midway point of, of 2019. I could, whenever I, I read about Russiagate, I'd, I'd start to get a headache. It just didn't make much sense. And we, we finally realized that there was never you know, substance to these accusations, that many of the details were correct. But the overall idea that millions of Americans believe that uh, Russia hacked our election in 2016 is absurd. The idea that Donald J. Trump is a Russian asset is absurd. So the, the media was usually careful in its reporting of details, but the inference that it would promote for two and a half years, essentially, that Trump was a Russian asset or that uh, Putin hacked our 2016 election were absolutely absurd. And so who's this historian who wrote an essay warning that the election of Trump could lead to dictatorship? Well, it's Robert Kagan, right, who I would describe more as a neocon propagandist. So in 1997, he co-founded the now defunct neoconservative think tank project for the new American century with William Crystal, which envisaged about seven different American wars. Uh, Kagan was an early strong advocate of American military action in Syria, Iran, Afghanistan, and Iraq, right, from 1998 onward. After the 1998 bombing of Iraq was announced, Kagan said, bombing Iraq isn't enough. Remember, sanctions against Iraq may, may well have cost the lives of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children. Right. Uh, Robert Kagan in 1998 was calling on President Clinton to send ground troops to Iraq. January 2002, Robert Kagan and Irving Kristol falsely claimed in a weekly Standard article that Saddam Hussein was supporting the existence of a terrorist training camp in Iraq, complete with a Boeing 707 for practicing hijackings and filled with non-Iraqi radical Muslims. Then they further alleged that September 11 hijacker Mohammed Atta met with an Iraqi intelligence official several months before the attack. These allegations were shown to be false. I remember Dennis Prager on his radio show talking to an editor at the Weekly Standard about these charges, and Prager kept saying, why aren't these charges being reported in the rest of the news media? Well, because these, these charges were false. 2008, Robert Kagan wrote an article called Neocon Nation, Neoconservatism for World Affairs, describing the main components of American neoconservatism as a belief in the rectitude, meaning the rightness, the morality of applying U.S. moralism to the world stage support for the U.S. to act alone, the promotion of American-style liberty and democracy in other countries, the belief in American hegemony and the confidence in U.S. military power and a distrust of international institutions. And uh, Kagan has often been referred to as the chief neoconservative foreign policy theorist. In uh, July 2000, Robert Kagan wrote that the problem with Colin Powell is his political and strategic judgment is not aggressive enough. That's my interpretation. Colin Powell doesn't believe the United States should enter into conflicts without strong public support, but he also doesn't believe that the public will support anything. That kind of iron logic rules out almost every conceivable post-Cold War intervention. When he talks intervention here, he means U.S. military intervention. In 2003, Robert Kagan's book, Paradise and Power, American Europe in the New World Order, published on the eve of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, created a sensation through its assertion that Europeans tended to favor peaceful resolutions of international disputes while the Americans take a more Hobbesian view in which many kinds of disagreements can only be settled by force. Or as Kagan puts it, Americans are from Mars, Europeans are from Venus. In 2016, February, Robert Kagan publicly left the Republican Party. That's referring to himself as a former Republican. He endorsed Democrat Hillary Clinton for president. 
because he was so afraid of uh, what he saw as an isolationist turn. Now, there is one area where I support Joe Biden's foreign policy over Donald Trump's foreign policy in that I believe that Donald Trump was consistently careless, reckless, and destructive of our relationships with our allies. And so I think Joe Biden has done a better job building our alliances, right? We are more powerful through alliances. It's like getting matching donations. I don't know how you raise money in your church or synagogue, but often in in synagogues that I attend, someone will put up an offer to match any donations over the, the next two weeks or month, all right? And that's the way to you know multiply donations and you can multiply power by forming alliances. And I think the Biden administration has done a better job than the Trump administration in working with our allies. But I think the way that Biden has worked with our allies to subsidize and instigate the war in Ukraine has been an absolute uh, disaster. And September 2021, Robert Kagan wrote an opinion essay published in the Washington Post, our constitutional crisis is already here because of Donald Trump. And then last week he published another essay Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. And so this guy is married to Victoria Newland, who is the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs under Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. So she made appearances supporting protesters in Ukraine back in 2013, 2014 during the Maidan uprising against a democratically elected pro-Russian president of Ukraine. She said that the U.S. had spent five billion dollars building democracy in Ukraine since 1991. Russia did not you know, take well to this statement. They claimed it was evidence that the U.S. was orchestrating a revolution against Russia's interests, which is probably true. Then I played earlier that, that phone call where she talked about who would be the best uh, prime minister of Ukraine and that we should F the EU. So to me, people like Robert Kagan and Victoria Nuland, they embodied the worst of the U.S. foreign policy establishment because they consistently push for unnecessary American military intervention overseas. Now, my primary response to the charge that Donald Trump wants to become a dictator is that he has never shown much ability nor interest at running things, right? He wants attention, and the more conflict he engenders, the more attention he gets. Paul Gottfried, back in 2012, had a pretty short, sweet analysis of Robert Kagan. It says, Robert Kagan, who seems to relish every war the U.S., has been in regrets. We haven't fought more of them even longer. So now he's selling himself as some kind of foreign policy realist or the realists he admires are people like himself who support all of America's past military adventures, presumably would favor lots more military intervention in the future. And I like Steve Saylor's analysis about these wild charges regarding Donald Trump wanting to be a dictator. So November 6, 2020, Steve Saylor tweeted, Donald Trump is just about the least authoritarian president since, say, Calvin Coolidge. Those who obsess about Trump's authoritarianism are projecting their own dark anti-democracy urges on Trump. So both right and left at times are anti-democratic. So the left wants to overturn populist measures such as the Prop 187 passed in California to restrict uh, government welfare to illegal immigrants that was overturned by judges. So the left, generally speaking, likes judicial intervention that nullifies Republican legislation or Republican populist referendums. And then the right, in in its own various ways, is quite willing to go against uh, popular opinion. So both sides don't 
tend to see democracy as an unalloyed good. And we don't live just simply in a democracy, right? The system we have contains elements of democracy, elements of dictatorship, in that the U.S. president has all the foreign policy powers of you know, King George III at the time of the American Revolution, right? The American president can essentially send us to war without the approval of, of Congress. And then we have, you know, ways that we're an oligopoly where just, you know, a few people have a, an outsized amount of power, though it's not as severe as it was in the past. So Jeff Bezos has something like 0.06% of the total American GNP, while uh, Rockefeller, was it Rockefeller? No, who was the, the great oil baron from the late 19th century? But anyway, at his height, he alone controlled 2% of America's GNP. So America was probably much more of an oligopoly back in the late uh, 19th century. Steve Saylor wrote October 9, 2018, yeah, Republicans just on the verge of rounding up dissidents into soccer stadiums. That's why the stock market has hammered down Jeff Bezos' net worth down. Well, that's not the point. <laughs> All right. So if, if we're on the verge of the stock of a Trump dictatorship, the stock market would be plunging. Right, because in a dictatorship, right, wealth can just be arbitrarily confiscated. The reason so much of the world's wealth pours into the United States is faith in American institutions of the rule of law and democratic procedures and American enforcement of laws, and that America is comparatively low in corruption compared to other countries. So, if we really were staring down the face of a Trump dictatorship, the stock market would be absolutely crashing and foreigners would be withdrawing hundreds of billions of dollars from America. That's not happening. So words are easy, right? Saying that Trump could be a dictator, effortless to say that. But if there was any reality to these charges, you'd see hundreds of billions, trillions eventually dollars fleeing out of the United States, the American stock market crashing, the American dollar crashing. None of that's happening because the people with real skin in the game, the people with billions and trillions of dollars in the game, do not take seriously these accusations that uh, Donald Trump is going to be some kind of you know, nasty dictator. And I, I agree with Saylor here. He says Trump would be bored about the second hour of a full authoritarian regime. He'd let his cricket critics out of the soccer stadiums to give him somebody to fight with. I don't think there's anybody in American public life who loves the conflict of democratic politics more than Trump. Authoritarianism in the European sense that brought to power both Hitler and Charles de Gaulle is connected to the feeling that partisan debate was unseemly. Donald Trump does not regard debate as unseemly. Donald Trump loves conflict. His enemies typically hate Trump because they find his love of conflict unseemly. They long for a philosopher king like Obama, under whom they could serve as PR flax, crafting conversations in which the citizenry's job is to shut up and to listen to their betters talking points. So Trump is kind of the second coming of his role model, George Steinbrenner. So Staler, I think, quite accurately views Donald Trump through the lens of the 1977-81 World Series rivalry of George Steinbrenner's New York Yankees and the O'Malley family's Los Angeles Dodgers. So the O'Malley's ran a superb authoritarian corporation in the Dodgers where everybody had to follow the corporate PR line that everything was copacetic and the Dodgers were extremely opaque and largely co-opted the media into going along with their strategy. By contrast, the early Steinbrenner Yankees were the most public, controversy-friendly baseball team of all time, with George Steinbrenner, Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson engaged in a war of all against all, 
carried out on the back cover of the tabloids. And that's kind of Donald Trump's way. So the Joe Biden regime seems so much more cohesive, just like the O'Malley regime seems so much more cohesive than the New York Yankee regime. But even though the Biden administration, generally speaking, does not leak against itself, it does not carry out its fights in public, all right, there's not all these unseemly conflicts between various members of the Biden administration as there was during the Trump administration. On the other hand, the Joe Biden administration is the most reckless, dangerous, incompetent foreign policy administration we've had in 80 plus years. January 2018, Steve Saylor wrote, it's comical that so many have denounced Donald Trump as an authoritarian whose election threatens that democracy dies in the dark, as Jeff Bezos' Washington Post claims. In reality, Trump's administration is the most public in memory, right? The Biden administration doesn't leak, right? The Trump administration constantly leaked. Comics making jokes about the president for the first time since 2008. Americans are enthusiastically arguing over politics. Trump, love him or hate him, has revitalized our democracy. The authoritarian Bezos runs his Amazon company very much along the closed, manipulative O'Malleyite lines rather than the Trump wide open, brawling Steinbrennist principles. Right. And uh, Jeff Bezos, under the supposedly authoritarian dictatorial Donald Trump, became the richest man in the history of the world while fighting with Donald Trump. October 8, 2021, Steve Saylor noted, Donald Trump's extraordinary effort to overturn the 2020 election result didn't take much thwarting. Trump told various officials to do something. They said, we'll resign. Trump responded, okay, you win. Right. So I think it was a disaster, a terrible thing that uh, Donald Trump tried to fight the overwhelming election results against him in 2020. I think that Donald Trump bears some moral responsibility for the ugly January 6th riots. I wish that Trump had followed protocol and shown up for the inauguration of Joe Biden. But I don't think he's a, a dictator. I think that is absolutely absurd. Right, let me catch my breath. That we see in the content. Um, and because we were looking at people that uh, turned out to fit closer or, or farther from the template that we were looking at, over time, we, we felt more comfortable with emphasizing that people were on a, a, a spectrum um, in, in terms of the archetype that we were looking at. And we made this tongue-in-cheek uh, kind of thing called uh, gorometer. What it's not is a scientific, psychometrically validated instrument and is definitely not a revolutionary theory. It's just applying a score of one to five um, on these 10 recurrent characteristics that we identified for each of the people that we cover um, afterwards. Uh, and we think they serve as, you don't want to be scoring very high on, on this scale. If you're up at the top of it, um, it it's generally not good. And Reverend Moon is the, is the highest score. Um, so uh, I'll get into the characteristics later, but mm, before any of the talk about gurus, I want to talk a bit about conspiracy theories. I'm sure everybody is well aware of conspiracy theories of one stripe or another. Um, but one persistent confusion that comes up is when we talk about conspiracy theories, what precisely do we mean? Is it just theories about conspiracies, uh, plots that happen in secret? Because obviously 
real conspiracies exist. There's, there's plenty of examples to there, including uh, the US government experimenting uh, over 40 years on, on people without their knowledge or uh, false flag plans that were not put into uh, practice, but, but were developed by the Defense Department um, to increase support for uh, war with Cuba in the past. So conspiracies definitely exist and also Conspiracies have been uncovered by investigations and whistleblowers. The Watergate scandal, uh, famously with a bunch of journalists, but uh, most famously Woodward and Bernstein. And more recently, Edward Snowden's whistleblowing about the NSA uh, surveillance systems and uh, the PRISM project. So all of that has led some researchers to argue that we shouldn't stigmatize conspiracy theories or people, conspiracy theorists, and because a lot of them are true. And most recently, you can hear Michael Shermer, a noted skeptic from America, make this point. Uh, let's see if you can. My argument is that it's rational to believe conspiracy theories because enough of them are true, it pays to err on the side of caution mm. just in case. As they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Sometimes they are after you, right? Mm. So uh, Michael published uh, a book just last year about conspiracy. So in some respects, could be considered an authority mm -hmm. on the topic. Um, and where I agree with that is that conspiracies exist on a, a spectrum. And, and there are conspiracies that are, that are true. And there are uh, less harmful ones. Um, this is a, just a, a conspiracy chart made by um, somebody on... Instagram, TikTok, anyway, Abby, Abby Richards, but uh, showing the kind of elevation and, and obviously uh, when you get up into anti-Semitic conspiracies, uh, getting more harmful. Um, however, most real world conspiracies are uncovered by conventional investigations and whistleblowers, um, not conspiracy theorists. And uh, what I would will argue here in response to Shermer and, and others is that uh, alongside researchers like uh, Stefan Lewandowski, that conspiracy theories are not just about conventional reasoning um, applied to unproven conspiracies. They involve a particular kind of reasoning and conspiratorial ideation, uh, which has distinctive characteristics. This includes that the conspiracy is motivated by malevolent uh, forces uh, or with malevolent uh, purposes attached to it. And it's unacknowledged by the mainstream. Uh, similarly, a complete distrust and dismissal of mainstream or... Okay, perhaps the number one news story in the United States over the past week is supposedly this rising flood tide of anti-Semitism on American college campuses. I think this story is a non-story. Right? I haven't even heard of one Jewish student being beaten up, let alone killed. So American college campuses are among the safest places in the world for Jews. Right? They, they may receive some pushback against Zionism. Right? They may hear some criticism of the Jewish state, but they're not physically in peril. And I thought this hearing on congressional hearing on uh, anti-Semitism was absolutely absurd. Looking at the New York Times here, one law firm prepared both Penn and Harvard for hearing on anti-Semitism. So 
the presidents of Harvard University of Pennsylvania and MIT came under fire after dodging questions about their policies. And two of these school presidents, Claudine Gay of Harvard, Elizabeth McGill of Penn, McGill has just resigned. Right? They were both prepared by Wilmer Hale, which is a white shoe law firm, meaning a law firm known for uh, you know coming from an Anglo-Saxon background and you know adhering to the supposedly the highest of Anglo-Saxon ideals. Right, an elite law firm, not supposedly not not a grubby law firm. That's its reputation anyway. But this plays into one of my favorite topics, and that's the importance of situation. The presidents of these universities were not primarily engaged in a legal hearing. They were not facing a grand jury, and they were not in court, but they were prepared by lawyers who crafted their responses as to be appropriate for a law court rather than a national hearing that was televised. And so the things that you'd say in a law court are not necessarily what you'd want to say to a national hearing. So lawyers will want people to be mindful of the law, but they're not necessarily skilled at getting people to be prepared for a national popular hearing. And so afterwards, the president of Harvard told the school newspaper, I got caught up in what became an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures, right? And that's not something that's going to please the public, right? So these college presidents were prepared to give answers in the court, but not in a public forum, right? They were talking as though they were giving legal answers when their responsibility was to give a vision of the university. So... Lise Stefanik, a Republican congresswoman out of New York, asked the three presidents whether the cause for violence against Jews would violate their school's code of conduct. But these, these calls for violence were incredibly coded, right? From the river to the sea, it's not an explicit call for violence. And so the presidents got caught up making these legalistic responses, saying, well, if targeted individuals, right, that, that might be a violation. If it is directed and severe, pervasive, it is harassment. And when pushed for a yes or no, President McGill said it is a context-dependent decision. And Dr. Gray of Harvard responded, it can be depending on the context. And these responses did not go over well with people in general, right? Regular people, right? Context-dependent. And uh, there's a Steve Saylor commentator who I think really nails what's happened with this Ivy League president's kerfuffle. Lack moral clarity. The presidents stood up for free speech, which is exactly what they should be doing. Right? Billionaire Harvard donor Bill Ackman's position here is a complete mess. He doesn't want these women running the Ivy League because they are diversity hires. He wants Jews protected as a diversity-protected class, and he wants free speech protections on campus, but not for people supporting the Palestinian cause. None of that makes any sense. The only way to explain his position in the most crude but consistent way possible is that as a Jew, he wants Jews running the Ivy League for the benefit of the Jews, which was the case, perhaps, you could argue, a few years ago. So as a Jew, he wants to turn back the clock to the recent past where people like Amy Goodman and Larry Burkow running Penn and Harvard, sort of people who he understands and who he can call on the phone. But McGill and Gay are not his kind of people. They are non-Jewish diversity hires. He can't call them on the phone, and he wants them gone. And that's about all there is to it. I think that is a superb analysis. And uh, Steve Saylor says that uh, the president of, of uh, University of Pennsylvania is a white Gentile. 
So she has fewer Pokemon diversity points than the black lady president of Harvard and the Jewish lady president of MIT. So it's not surprising that she was the first head to roll in the current anti-Semitism, moral panic, muscle flexing show of strength. Right? There is no concrete, realistic reason that uh, Jews at American college campuses are, you know, in dire threat for their lives. Right? That's just absurd. That's just hysterical. Right? All political opinion. Salut makes the point, really is a call for the use of, or the threat of the use of force, right? Politics comes down to force. Government relies on armed men to enforce the will of the government. So First Amendment protected expressions of political opinion tend to be cause for potential or real violence against somebody. That is the nature of politics, right? Politics boils down to the friend-enemy distinction. The enemy is he who rises in mortal threat to you and your people. So if you call for less Israeli retributive violence against Gazans, right, that can be interpreted as being caused for more impunity for Hamas violence. So wherever you call, right, you're either signing off on Hamas violence or you're signing off on the genocide of Gazans, whatever your position. So really, you want American university presidents you know, limiting this type of speech? Right? If you denounce the Hamas October 7 massacre, you are setting the stage for massive bombings of Gaza and ethnic cleansing, if not outright genocide of Gazans. Michael Tracy had uh, sharp analysis. University presidents were trapped by a BS series of questions. Nobody marches around chanting, we call for the genocide of Jews. Well, not on American college campuses. They march around chanting political slogans whose meaning is hotly contested and debated. One side of that debate insists that the slogans are tantamount to calls for genocide. Right? Genocide has become a, a boogie word. It has been drained of meaning. The other side vehemently rejects that characterization. I mean, scholars of genocide have fallen out and stopped speaking to each other over the definition of genocide. So we have all these outrage peddlers and politicians and pundits and donors demanding that university presidents administratively intervene in this raging, complicated political debate and punish one side because the slogans allegedly endanger or threaten or hurt the feelings of certain students. Although, strangely, concrete examples of the physical welfare of students being threatened are non-existent. Right? The examples cited tend to be painfully exaggerated or outright faked. We, we have no examples of Jewish college students being murdered for being Jewish. People who want to punish, curtail, and censor speech on behalf of Israel are pressuring administrators to end raging political debate. They want to stop the debate. They want to end free speech. They want to stop the discussion, right? And so when university presidents equivocate on the wisdom of doing that, they are then painted as moral monsters by claiming that they're endorsing the advocacy of genocide, even though the whole fulcrum of the debate on what counts genocide is furiously disputed. So today's pro-censorship lobbyists don't want the debate to continue. They want to shut down the debate. They want to flex the power of their group. They want to use their political, financial, cultural power to shut down discussion and to anoint one side the victim, the victor, and one the victor as well as the victim. So we've got this gargantuan blow to free speech. And the period since October 7, Tracy says, has been the most stifling and repressive in this regard since the George Floyd meltdown of 2020, when today's pro-censorship lobbyists were pretending to be principled First, First Amendment martyrs. So excellent 
analysis there from Steve Saylor and Michael Tracy. All right, let's get a little bit more here from Alexander Makuris. To detail sensitive internal deliberations. Senior officials across the government are also worried. So he's making the point that uh, a lot of information is being held from Joe Biden because they don't, leading Biden administration officials don't think the president is capable of handling the truth. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. All right. That's essentially the perspective of many members of the Biden administration with regard to the president, that this feeble old man is not regarded as being capable of handling the truth. So they are deliberately keeping information from him. There's a major strike on Houthi positions could derail progress on the Middle East conflict. U.S. and U.N.-led efforts to broker another ceasefire between Saudi forces and militants in Yemen, according to a fifth U.S. official. And the National Review is furious about this. They say that the president, having been essentially cut out of discussions, is failing to exercise proper control over the administration and as you would expect from National Review, essentially what they want is a full-on U.S. massive retaliation against the Houthis, even if this involves a potential conflict with Iran. Now, I think there's a number of things to be said here. In a couple of, program, a couple of programs ago, about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I discussed the potential in the Middle East for another type of Gulf of Tonkin incident, the somewhat mysterious events that happened in the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964, which were used by the Biden administration to justify its war, by the, sorry, the Lyndon Johnson administration, which were used by the uh, Lyndon Johnson administration to justify their war against Vietnam. Well, I have to say that these reports about these attacks in the Red Sea and the rather mysterious actions of the USS, um, uh, of the USS Kearney have to me something of a look of another Gulf of Tonkin incident. We don't really know exactly what happened. And I'm going to suggest that what Politico and National Review and AP are all telling us is that the Pentagon, that officials within the White House have withheld briefings about all of this from the president because they're worried that he will overreact, that he will use these events to launch these massive strikes on the Houthis, potentially on Iran itself, and that they're terrified of an uncontrolled escalation in the Middle East, and they don't trust the president not to order it. That is how I read all of these various articles. And that shows how close to a trigger point we remain in the Middle East. We get lots of, as I said, confusing reports about events in the Red Sea, not really or properly explained. Leaks about them from anonymous people in the media, and reports also that officials in the administration and in the Pentagon are so nervous of a potential overreaction that they're withholding information from the president because they fear that the president might engage in an escalation that could deepen the crisis in the Middle East. I am not going to say that I fully understand. I'm going to say that I, I don't fully understand all the details of this. As I said, it looks to me, it has to look to me of an attempted, a concocted attempt to get the United States into a conflict, to try to bait the president into authorizing the conflict and frustration on the part of some people that other wiser heads, calmer heads in the administration acted to prevent that. But I don't know this for a fact. The one point where I agree with National Review is that it speaks about a collapse, a further collapse 
in the president's authority. We saw that in that article by Simon, uh, by, uh, uh, Simon Tisdall in The Guardian that I discussed uh, yesterday. Um, and we see this again with this article in National Review. And the article in National Review um, adds that Biden isn't the most effective manager. His presidency is circling the drain. But it's also true that the president has been profoundly ill-served by his subordinates. And maybe Biden is simply incapable of retaking command of his own administration. But the president's faculties notwithstanding, there is still one, only one commander chief at a time. And Biden needs to start acting like it, which, by the way, seems to me an extraordinary thing to say. It concedes that the president might not be fully capable of acting as commander in chief, but nonetheless should act like commander in chief. I I'm not going to explore the meaning of that. But anyway, there we go. That's that's the situation there. Yeah. Is, is Joe Biden capable of uh, living up to the responsibilities of commander in chief? Right, increasing evidence points in the direction of uh, not being up to the job. And that's why he gets so little support in the polls. A little bit more from the Duran podcast here. Mama Alaska says, good morning, gentlemen. Many blessings to you both. I do thank you for that super sticker. Kafan, welcome to the Duran community. J.H. Scott says, thank you both as always. Any thoughts on Ireland's attempt on adding new censorship laws to their already existing laws? Well, what more to say about Ireland than we could be saying about pretty much every country in the West? They're all going down this rabbit hole and they're going down it faster and further all the time. And Ireland is no exception. And maybe it's taking it further all the time. And the impetus comes from governments of left and of right. And we see it in Britain. We see it even more perhaps now in Germany, where it's particularly taking a particularly sinister turn than we see it in Ireland. And even in the United States, despite all the protections that the Constitution provides and the First Amendment provides. And if you want me to tell you what I think, in terms of the West, in terms of people in the West and the future of the West, this is the single biggest issue, actually. Because when control of debate happens, the West is turning its back on the best of itself. The one thing it achieved more than anything else was freedom of expression. It turns its back on that, then all its attractions, all its appeal mm -hmm. to the outside world vanishes. And on top of that, it loses that single thing which made it economically and socially and politically for so long so successful. So this is a disaster. And Ireland is no exception to the general rule. Yeah. What about legally that, that in Ireland, from what I understand, they can actually like confiscate your phone or grab your phone, the police, and if they see any content that they think is... Is hateful. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're you're in trouble. I mean, what? I mean, I, I think I have it right. I don't know. People in the chat, do I have it right? Is that pretty much what what the laws that are coming into effect are? I mean, well, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it, it is my understanding of what the laws involve. Again, people in Ireland might want to push back on that, but that's my understanding. That's correct, yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's absolutely appalling. I mean, people are having their property confiscated for exercising what are their human rights. Okay, you can only take your phone only if you commit a hate crime. Yeah, but what is a hate crime? You see, this is the problem. I mean, no doubt there are definitions, that the definitions of hate crimes are being expanded and extended all the time. But anyway, thank you for that. Okay, is there any way back for some of the goofiest gurus, all right, those who are, say, pushing ivermectin and saying, don't take the COVID vaccines, take the nonsense like ivermectin. All right, this is from a discussion between Chris Kavanaugh and this will be Matt Brown, Australian psychology professor. In future. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Did you catch any of that, Matt? Brett or any guru's path to redemption doesn't exist? Are they doomed for life? Ah, oh, gee. I was thinking about Brett recently because I noticed he was still doing the ivermectin. Oh, yeah. Still tripling and quadrupling down on that. And, you know, it just struck me how 
like he passed some point of no return with that a while ago. Like a normal person might might be opinionated, might get it get out early on a topic, and then still be able to go look. You know, Mia Culpa, I got that wrong or whatever. But yeah. for someone like Brett, I feel like it's it's really impossible because for him, for him, and this was this is true now, but it was true many months ago. If if, if he admits he was wrong about that, then he's got to admit that one he didn't understand the available scientific evidence at the time. Two, he's got to admit that he p- promoted very dangerous health advice to an awful lot of people. So to the extent that there is a redeeming quality to my blog posts and live streams, and I've been blogging since 1997, it's to the extent that I can admit that sort of thing. When I can admit it, I've just been completely wrong. I remember... Uh, I, I retook geometry class. I think the first time I took it, I got something like a D and I retook it in high school and got a C. And the second time through, all right, uh, I'd been sick for a few days, came back to class. The teacher gave an assignment and then we were working on it on, on paper and he'd just walk up and down the desk and check, check our work. When he came to me, he looked at my work and he said, you don't have a clue what we're doing here, do you? I mean, it really took me aback, and I, I think I'm such a smart guy, and there are ways that, you know, I'm top 1% in some limited area, but there are all sorts of ways that I've had a vastly exaggerated sense of the accuracy and profundity of my own abilities or perceptions. And so if I can, you know, redeem these these shows, it it is by saying, hey, I was wrong here. I was way wrong there. I, you know, completely messed that up. All right. Unless, unless we, as people can, can face when we, we go off the rails, right. There's, there's not much help. You know, there's not much hope for people who can't come to terms with the, the damage that they've done to themselves and to other people. That you should be taking ivermectin instead of vaccines. And Ultimately, he's got to accept that he's not a scientific genius that, that can, yeah, that can see all. all of these things that <laughs> that all the other people can't see, and that's just not possible. Like it's like with a personality like that, his entire his entire self image, his public profile, his entire career <laughs> in scare quotes is based on on this. So it it has to be this way. I can't see someone like him coming back. Yeah, and a more broader answer I would mention is like I think there's always the possibility that you know somebody could see the error of their ways and and then you know highlight all the stuff that they've done wrong it's it, there's a plausible path that exists they're just almost psychologically impossible for most of the people we cover because of the degrees of narcissism and whatnot to to ever take that path and i would say that anytime you see someone start to take that path mm-hmm. that you should be a little bit skeptical of. right there's an adaptive use of narcissism narcissism is a desire for admiration, right? If I didn't have an above average desire for admiration, I wouldn't do as many live streams and think about how bereft your life would be without my live streams. Okay, but then there's a maladaptive amount of narcissism, and that's where I have an exaggerated sense of the keenness of my own perceptions, all right? So it's good that I have a little bit of narcissism that gives me the energy and the desire to do so many live streams, It'd be a bad idea if I was so convinced of my own rectitude and righteousness and wisdom that I wasn't able to face up to when, you know, I completely bollocked something up. Off it. Like, um, uh, who's that guy that, uh, Glenn Beck, right? Remember Glenn Beck went on this kind of 
quasi-apology tour saying, oh, all this division that's been fostered amongst, like, you know, Republicans hating conservatives, and he, he kind of apologized for it, but not really. And it was primarily about him attracting a new, you know, slightly more moderate audience mm -hmm. than the unhinged one he cultivated on Fox. But he's completely back into partisan commentary and stuff. And, like, a lot of it, or, or ex-Infowars employee, uh, mm. being critical of Alex and his practices, mm. but they rarely acknowledge that they were personally promoting, you know, yeah. like conspiracy theories and doing, uh, like being fine with Alex's racism and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think right. the path is open, but the possibility is very slim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think you can. It's helpful to understand it by looking at other sort of phenomena where people have or don't have those come to Jesus type moments or revelatory, life changing. Sort of inflection points because there are cases right like there are those well-known cases of say you know ex you know people that used to be like a skinhead neo-nazi or something and now they're on speaking tours talking about you know how terrible it all is and everything but i think yeah with the, with the people that we cover it's it's actually the, the analogy is stronger to, to actually having a personality disorder so personality the, the spectrum <laughs> the spectrum of personality disorders is is a whole field in itself but the the long and the short of it is is that if you have one of them it is very very difficult to undo them they they mm. are they are kind of sadly kind of permanent um once they develop to a certain yeah. degree and once they develop to a certain... yeah so sorry i got some feedback um and it's no, it's not I, like I, okay, I, okay like 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 you kept thinking about whatever evolution or something like that and eventually you, you went from being evangelist christian to 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 not or something right people do make those sort of big changes in their belief system but that's because they believe or, or change from a nazi to a to not a nazi or back and forth or whatever but those sorts of belief changes are, are really, they're not, like the reason why they had those beliefs is often because they, they you know, they grew up in a certain social milieu. They, 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 they learned some things and didn't learn other things. It wasn't from essentially having a kind of a personality disorder. Um, whereas the, the, the thing with the gurus is it's, it's kind of incurable. Like they, they have, they have the beliefs that they have and the worldview that they have as a, as a function of their, of their personality. Um, so it's not easily cured. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I like that analogy of uh, just uh, excessive amount of uh, conspiracy theorizing and just absolute inability to admit when you're wrong, uh, pretty akin to a personality disorder, right? When you can't face up to how wrong you've been about something, right? When you're just congenitally not capable of being honest, right? That's, that's very difficult to overcome. And I remember once I had a therapist who was afraid that I had reached that level of sociopathy back in 1998. At clipping, and we've got like good software as well for editing that, that makes everything. But it's just, it is just me and Matt. There, uh, there are some people that post the social media for us who are very nice, like the Instagram and Facebook have nothing. We don't post anything there, but um, uh, kind volunteers do. Um, but otherwise, we do everything. So that that's takes up more time than it probably should. So if we want to scale up, we'd hire an editor. We'd have a more uh, regular release schedule and those kind of things. But to do that, it would have to be more, we'd have to downgrade something, right? Like it would basically be very hard, at least for me, to maintain my like work life, current work life and the podcast and not end up like... Uh, completely devoid of family <laughs> interaction so yeah yeah i wouldn't want to scale it up because you know I, I think you could quite easily like you know look at those youtube people that like put out a video every couple of days or whatever or some of our gurus that just just this 
avalanche of content content but you know it ultimately becomes shit doesn't it i mean well, you have to have I, something yeah i, I don't I, have that many i don't have that many ideas like interesting things to say coming at me that quickly so yeah i i think the yeah i think that's a, a good point that uh I know the best shows I do when I haven't done any shows for a while and I've just stored up a whole bunch of notes and a whole bunch of links and a whole bunch of topics and a whole bunch of things that I want to say. The more prep I do for a show, the, the better the show. So usually the more time between shows, right, the, the better the show that I can eventually do. The, the way that I prefer it is a bit Coffeezilla, the guy that we used to in Okay, enough on that. All right, let's go to Michael Knowles here. Exclusive top Pornhub staff admits to inserting gay and trans themes into mainstream porn to try to convert uh, straight men. This is a breaking news story. Uh, I'm really pleased that we were able to uh, get this story. And uh, we did not do the investigation. This investigation was undertaken by a a wonderful uh, news group. This would be Sound Investigations. I am joined here by one of the journalists, Arden Young. Arden, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. So Arden, before we get into how you conducted this investigation, what it all means, I want to just show people some clips of, of what you've uncovered because some of us have suspected that Pornhub and its parent company, formerly called MindGeek, now it's called ALO. They have to keep changing the name because they're an evil company and they, they don't want to have to uh, face the music. Some of us have suspected that they've been up to these kinds of activities for a while. Here it is in their own words. Let's say you're 12 years old. You're still figuring out your sexuality, maybe even your gender. Wouldn't it be helpful to see, not a celebration, but just like maybe a normalization of something that you think is what you want, you know? Probably helps a lot. Let's say I was 12 and I saw like Trans Angels, I saw all these different sites. It would help me figure out what I do like and what I don't like. I need to try to push stuff that's more, less less accepted. Like putting a, putting a, a trans male or a trans female in a scene, you wouldn't get that on a normal mainstream site. So test it out. See if you get a bigger audience with it. See if you can convert somebody, right? Like maybe somebody who's never looked for anything like that might find it interesting and click on it. Same thing for bi stuff, same thing for gay. That's another senior script writer at MindGeek, now called ALO, but we all know it as Pornhub. That's just the biggest pornographers on the planet. Two major discoveries here. One, they, they know that kids are looking at their content. They're totally fine with it. It obviously helps their business model. We all knew that. I don't think there's anything different going on here than what goes on throughout life in the sense that everybody wants to make the world more friendly to what they want, right? We all strive to reconfigure the environment around us to better align with what we desire. So if you're married with kids, right, you want to change the environment around you say, to be more conducive to monogamy, to be a safer, healthier, more wholesome place for raising children than if you're, say, single and you're, you know, wanting to ride the cock carousel, all right? So what uh, single people want, what what married people want, what married people with children want are often quite different. But wherever you are in life, I would expect you try to change the environment consciously or unconsciously into making it, you know, more friendly to your wants and needs. This is as true for straight people as gay, white as black, you know, Jewish, Muslim, 
secular Christian, right? We all try to shift the environment around us. It's crazy to hear it in their own words. We all knew that. The second discovery, to me, is the most shocking. Senior scriptwriter here at the biggest porn company on earth saying, yeah, we're trying to convert straight guys into looking at gay porn or trans porn. We're always trying to push the boundaries. We're not even just serving the market that already exists for porn. We're trying to create new markets by, by creating new desires in people that they So here's what I discovered from my experience of promiscuity, that my moral barriers started falling down. Like when I started becoming promiscuous, I thought, oh, I'd never get with a married woman. And then I started having some flirty interactions with married women. And luckily, they weren't interested in going further. But all the the moral boundaries that I thought I had started dissolving as I got into the promiscuous lifestyle because it just became a compulsion. So whether you're straight or gay, you start leading a promiscuous life. Uh, My experience of this is that one's moral boundaries start to collapse. I think that's what's going on here. Do not previously have that are certainly out of the mainstream that are considered more deviant. And, and we're going to slip that content into the porn to, ex, to expand the palate, I suppose, of the customer. I can't believe they're admitting this. I know. I mean, I, I was sitting across from him. That was probably one of the last things I was expecting him to say. Um, I Well, I think people get confused, all right, about what they should or shouldn't say publicly. Right, we we're all I would expect part of in groups, and so we get used to saying things within an in group that would just sound terrible if they were shared publicly, right? And so one way to maintain a sense of proportion is to even when you're participating in the dance in your in group, have have a part of your brain that uh, intermittently thinks, what would my actions, what would my words, what is going on right now within my in-group. How would this look like to an outside neutral observer? But uh, when I was in the porn industry, right, most porn people felt like a strongly identifying persecuted in-group minority. They had the same sort of mentality in many ways as Orthodox Jews or traditional Muslims, that they were a persecuted, you know, highly identifying in-group. And so within an in-group that's strongly identifying, you tend to say things that would sound horrible if people outside your group heard them. I, my instincts were to just ask him about the the kinds of things they were marketing to people because I knew he does primarily work on gay and trans pornography sites. That's mainly what he writes. And um, he was very, very open. He was very matter of fact. And, and in fact, he, like you saw, he even viewed kids viewing porn as a positive thing. So you, you're conducting this interview. This guy obviously has no idea what's going on. So there are many people in the sexually promiscuous lifestyle that just want an environment around them that is more and more conducive to promiscuity, where even it can get to the point where sex between family members, relatives, uh, friends, employers, and employees uh, with strangers, that it, it all becomes more and more easy where it's greased and lubricated and, and, you know, rendered, you know, less and less effortful to penetrate and to be penetrated. Going on. But you'd think 
if if you were working for so degenerate a company and, and you were engaged in such even today so one thing I, I noticed within 20 minutes of the first time that I was on a porn set, within approximately 20 minutes, what was happening there just seemed completely normal to me. All right? We become easily desensitized by the environment. What's, what's normal in a sports bar is not normal in a church or a synagogue often. And what goes on in porn set is not considered normal in a, in a workplace. And the type of conversations that you may have in an online chat are not acceptable in most workplaces, but we become desensitized. And so you often notice people from say the porn industry or from any dissident group, right? When they become used to that group and then try to make it in the wider world, they have great difficulty because they become accustomed to saying things that are just not acceptable. But you take anyone, right? The, the most morally strong pretty much. And you put them on a porn set within 20 minutes or so what's happening on that porn set will seem normal. So people get into this line of work and then it becomes completely normal to them. I, I remember people who knew me would reflect, it's like, my God, you've become so desensitized. You've become so crude. You now just talk like any ordinary uh, porn person. I remember when you used to have a brain. I remember when you used to be interested in ideas. Hey, frowned upon kinds of behaviors you might be a little a, a, you might play it a little closer to the vest right he didn't though it did it take much prodding or was he just open about this he was extremely open about this and this we're talking about dylan in particular the senior script writer for alo um he was extremely open extremely obliging did not think my questions were strange or out of place at all um, and it goes to show you kind of the mindset these employees of this company are in. Porn um, in all of its forms are so normalized to them and they're so callous to something as serious as a child being able to view pornography. But of course, we all know, and in fact, in one of your interviews, you you mentioned that the, the median age of exposure to pornography now for kids is something like 11. Frankly, I'm surprised it's that high. I, I, I would even... Right, so before you get you know, high and haughty about this, you know, horrible behavior by top Pornhub staff, you know, recognize that you're in this situation, right? If you're able to stomach being in this situation for 20 minutes, you would quickly start to find it normal and it would change how you thought, how you spoke, how you acted. If you were in a position where you had, you know, sexual access to attractive young women, all right, you would in all likelihood take advantage of that, even if you knew it wasn't good for you, it wasn't good for your soul. It wasn't good for your eternal salvation. Right? Most men are not capable of saying no to a sexual opportunity with an attractive young woman. Right? The reason that most married men stay faithful is that they simply don't have these opportunities. I expect it might be lower. Maybe today it is lower. We, we all know that kids are accessing porn, and that's how the porn companies cultivate and groom their, their future crop of customers, because kids' brains are very I like what they do in the United Kingdom or in England, to the best of my knowledge, that you have to sign up with your internet service provider to be able to have access to pornography. And I think that that might be a good idea. Very, very malleable. If they get addicted to this stuff when they're 10 or 11 years old, they're going to stick with it for a very long time, most likely. Again, it's horrifying. They should be prosecuted for it. It's just evil. It's great to hear them admit it. The thing that is so shocking to me, I guess, is that we have been told for my entire life 
by the left, by the, the pro-pornography people, by the sexual revolutionaries, that sexual desire is innate and immutable. It's an orientation. Nobody becomes gay, bisexual, trans. It's not that you, you're just, you're born that way. And how dare you suggest, how do, I, we'll probably be kicked off of social media for even, for even repeating what this top porn employee is, who writes the stuff, who, know, who knows what he's talking about, what he is admitting on camera, we'll probably be, be kicked off even for repeating it. But, but what he is saying is, yeah, nah, that's all bunk. Actually, yeah, you can convert people. That's how our business model works. You got I mean, what happens to men on ships? What happens to men in prison? All right. Uh, heterosexual men under certain circumstances will, you know, have homosexual sex. Uh, it's like Roy Cohn in, what was that, that play about angels? Where he says, you know, I'm, I'm not gay. I, you know, I've effed a lot of men, but I'm not gay. Had to slip in this weirder stuff. So you take a guy who's been straight his whole life, who's never entertained any other kind of thought. And then you try to get him. Well, actually, you went even in greater depth uh, with him. Let's play that clip. The thing is, is like when you write for like Sean Cody, which is like primarily gay targeted, when you write for trans angels, which is trans uh, female presenting targeted, you also try to see how much you can take of that and bring it to mainstream vanilla content, right? Because like Brazzers and Reality Kings is predominantly for straight men, but you try to like push the envelope as much as you can be like, okay, can I hint at like buy content here? Can I, can I like talk more about like, what if we brought a trans talent onto the site? And you kind of like take those risks to try and broaden it a little bit more, even though you know that you have a site dedicated to that, right? Like you're always trying to push a little further. Cause the thing is, the thing about Trans Angels, which is a site, um, it's female presenting trans women. It's, and like, they sell that to straight men like that's the demographic there it is there's they are they're trying to trans the straight guys i mean that that's not my words don't hey hey social media companies don't take me off for saying that that's what the senior writer at MindGeek, the guy who writes all of this porn he is saying we are trying to take straight guys our target demo is converting and a lot of people, surprisingly, in the sex industry become somewhat jaded and all orifices start looking alike. Vivid director Paul Thomas, who used to perform on Broadway, right? He liked to put, you know, gay sex into his heterosexual porn films because he just thought it was like more edgy and exciting. I remember one, one couple talked about going to see Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, when he... No, Paul Thomas, not Paul Thomas Anderson, but just Paul Thomas, the vivid director, not the mainstream Hollywood director. But when they went to see Paul Thomas, right, he had, you know, a dildo stuck up his ass and they like ran out onto the street because they, they weren't ready for that. So, you know, edgy people try to create an environment around them that is, you know, more conducive to encouraging kink. Straight guys into trans guys. Yeah, and you know, I think I think he meant convert in the yeah. marketing sense, which doesn't really make it any better. What's well, it's um, the same really sense? They're concerned it, about it, profits. Yes, I, there's a whole conversation yeah. to be had about the business model and capitalism, but it when we're talking about a product that 
Okay, don't want to do that to death. Let's just get a little bit here of uh, Howard Kurtz. Just reporting or commenting on media buzz over-the-top things that Trump says, like his talk about retribution or getting even with opponents or saying he'll go after what he calls the enemy of the people. I've criticized plenty of things Trump has said and done over the years, and as a leading presidential candidate, he should be aggressively scrutinized. Yet, after nine years of a hostile relationship with the media, suddenly there's not even a pretense of fairness. The Atlantic has just published an entire issue on how the foreign president is a danger to democracy. The New York Times keeps running some version of that story. The Washington Post filled several inside pages with an anti-Trump opinion piece, and all that reverberates across television. I think that people have normalized uh, the possibility of Trump coming back to office. Uh, we get used to anything. This time, uh, he is coming bent on revenge. The lead story in this morning's New York Times is warning how a second term could unleash a darker Trump, highlighting the former president's violent and authoritarian rhetoric. There is a clear path to dictatorship in the United States, and it's getting shorter every day. That's Robert Kagan, a former Reagan official, writing in the Washington Post. There's a growing agreement and acute concern, I think, across the political spectrum about the explicitly authoritarian threat of a second Trump term. It's a very special issue of The Atlantic, where they have the same people writing the same articles. They usually write about how terrible Donald Trump is and how much he's a real threat uh, to be an authoritarian this time around. I've had journalists say, well, he is a dictator. And a f okay, and uh, Trump supporters say in the chat, I, I, wish, I wish Donald Trump was the, the dictator that they, you know, that they say he is. Good... Uh, New episode from Decoding the Gurus. They decode the popular podcast Red Scare, which, honestly, two women talking in the most inane way, right? I, I couldn't stand listening to the Red Scare for more than five minutes. Kudos to Decoding the Gurus for sitting through an entire episode. Here's their critique. Primarily, again, and also important, when we talk about environmental factors, we're not just talking about like the society that we live in and no. you know, too much screen time. We're talking about exposure to stuff during pregnancy yeah, yeah. or medicines and things like that, birth complications and so on. Right. Those are the things that are actually relatively strongly supported, but that's not what they're going to fix it on. And part of the issue is when you say exposure to chemicals in early stages of life or whatever, the kind of chemicals that they're going to talk about are not <laughs> the ones that have strong evidence supporting them. So yeah, it's one of those things where like environment gets mixed in with all types of things. But if you imagine by environment, they're primarily primarily talking about, you know, the same kind of toxins that most of your health and wellness influencers will identify, pimerazole, these kind of things, right? Yeah, that's what's going to come up. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a little bit more about autism as an identity category and general stupidity about the causes of autism. Now that there's this, like, push for neurodiversity as, like, an identity category, mm -hmm. uh, you say also in your essay that, like, we're, they're sort of trying to destigmatize neurodivergency and in, in that way also failing to do the research necessary to actually attribute it to the certain environmental or chemical causes that... Mm -hmm. But first of all, like autism is thrown around a lot. Yeah, it's very broadly applied. Okay, comment in the chat. Good thing nobody reads The Atlantic. The Atlantic is probably the most influential magazine we have today. So uh, out of all the magazines that the people in power read, probably more of them read The Atlantic than any other magazine. So just because you don't read The Atlantic doesn't mean nobody reads The Atlantic. A friend of mine who subscribes to Apple News Plus was just talking to me the other day about you know how compelling, how well-written the articles in the Atlantic are. I, I probably read one or two articles in the Atlantic every day. Um, obviously, people are becoming more autistic clinically, but I also feel like a lot of normative behaviors now qualify sort of as, like, 
our times are becoming increasingly autistic and everyone so everyone is sort of on the spectrum do you, mm -hmm, do you think mm -hmm. that like for instance being online makes you more autistic or do autistic people gravitate toward being online both both of those i feel like it's not just environmental toxins but but just literally everything mm -hmm. like even how you're raised right or your experiences that's extremely vague and broad, isn't it? I mean, one thing to say that being online makes you more autistic or yeah. just everything, all your experiences, then you're talking in such broad terms and you must be referring to some concept of autism that is just so broad as to be entirely meaningless, surely. That actually does make the point there about there being a lot of claims about behavior being autistic or people being autistic, right? It's kind of trendy, especially in Silicon Valley kind of spaces. But I think also in these artistic and creative spaces too, you know, I was mentioning these, you know, hip directors and you could think of names of artists and authors and stuff like that who have a, a brand and a, a bit like the Silicon Valley people it kind of makes sense to have that brain where you're like in touch with the infinite you know you're somehow special your insights are better they're more unique and when you're building a brand to to become well known as an artist of some kind i can see an incentive to lean into that so it's kind of ironic isn't it that they bring that up <laughs> with tell lin who you know arguably could be leaning into it for the same reasons yes it is slightly ironic we don't need more irony in this chakras there's already <laughs> yeah. they're already supplying enough we, we shouldn't we shouldn't do it i would take it as a underhand dig because they did say at the start that they have some questions about his claims about autism and stuff as well so i think there is an element of that there but yeah. the way that it's used here like here's another example of it just being like used as a very broad term and diagnoses being thrown around casually yeah i feel like the increase in autism is must be connected to the increase in autofiction if there is an increase in autofiction i don't know if there has been but just it seems like mm. autistic people do you think joan didian was autistic sorry I don't know. <laughs> A little, yeah. Something was Definitely. up with her, yeah. yeah. So Talin's an auto-fictional writer, right? Uh -huh. That's his genre. It's a genre of literature that combines elements of autobiography and fiction. And he was saying that that fictional style is connected to the rise of autism. Yeah, I think his link is autistic people being fixated on topics and linking things, seeing things from their perspective that, you know, having difficulties with theory of mind stuff means that that would be an appealing genre of literature for them. But the logic there as well, Matt, is I think the rise of this, if there has been a rise in this, like you would want the first thing, right? You'd want to establish that if you want to make the claim that this is because autism is becoming more common so now this is becoming a more popular genre of, of fiction you'd first want to know that that is the case wait wait stop the presses elliot blatt has been kicked off next door so elliot blatt was having all these intense arguments on next door and he says i just got kicked off next door the app for implying that different people have different gifts this is a blessing in disguise elliot that y you may step away from from doing combat online, which is probably not in your best interest or in the best interest of your neighborhood. <laughs> but but condolences. I mean, every you know every loss. All right, it it knocks us back, and it's it's disheartening, and it it may prompt one to engage in introspection and to kind of slow your roll to reconsider how you're doing things. And uh, this might look to many people like depression, but I don't want you to just automatically go out and try to get on SSRIs because you feel like your role has been slowed. You feel, you're feeling down, all right? I don't want you to just go out there and start medicating your sadness, all right? You're experiencing normal human sadness. You've suffered a significant loss, right? This app, which played an important role in your life, has now been denied to you. And you're feeling bereft of community. You're feeling bereft of connection. You feel like you're spiraling downward. You're, you're, you're sapped from your energy, your, your drive. You're increasingly turning to nicotine gum to try to keep going. But there's not enough caffeine or nicotine gum in the world, all right, to 
to fill the hole in your soul right now that comes from the loss of the Nextdoor app. But uh, don't worry, it gets better. So I'm on my third day without Adderall. And it's funny, I think I now more significantly understand what Adderall does for me by having three days off of Adderall. I accidentally lost half of my prescription pills for Adderall. So I got to pace myself and uh, no Adderall for three days. And this is what life is like for me now without Adderall. My mind skips like one of those old record players that would skip. So I started doing an exercise that typically takes me 15 minutes yesterday. And a minute in, I was just dying to do something else. And it wasn't a rigorous exercise, wasn't a demanding exercise, wasn't an onerous exercise. It was a very simple, pleasant exercise. But a minute in, I wanted to skip to doing something else. So I noticed without Adderall, I want to skip from book to book, from podcast to podcast, from exercise procedure to exercise procedure to cleaning this and noting down that. I just noticed my mind skipping around a lot more. So this used to be normal. Then I had two weeks of experience with Adderall where I couldn't really notice any difference after taking the pill. But now that I'm not taking the pill, I just noticed how much you know, more my attention wanders, how much more I need stimulation, and just how more difficult it is to have sustained focus. So experiencing life now three days without Adderall I understand why the predominant perspective on ADHD is that you cannot make progress with your ADHD, that there is no solution to your ADHD without taking the top-line stimulant medications such as Ritalin and Adderall. I, I, I kind of viscerally understand that perspective now because I'm experiencing my mind just like flitting from here and there. I'm, I'm experiencing like how much more difficult it is to sustain my focus. And I wasn't really aware of this. I was just dimly aware, but I'd been dimly aware of this for 20 years. People have talked to me about ADHD. Maybe I should get diagnosed for ADHD and thought maybe I'd do it. And I don't think I would have ever done it, except that it's so easy now, right? Since the pandemic, right? It's much easier to get an online Zoom medical appointment. I got an online Zoom medical appointment. I saw a doctor for about 40 minutes, got diagnosis of ADHD got a prescription for a very low level, five milligrams twice a day of, of Adderall. And the procedure was so much easier. I don't think I would have gone through all the rigor and all the appointments and all the tests and bringing a friend along. And it's usually quite demanding, highly time consuming and, and challenging to get an adult diagnosis of ADHD. And now that there are various online portals for doing it, just put, you know, I need to get an ADHD diagnosis into Google and all these ads will pop up for online ways of getting diagnosed. But because it's so easy to get the opportunity to be tested and then get diagnosed and then try out a very low level of Adderall, that's what enabled me to finally do something that had been kind of in my head for about 20 years, but many things can wander around as a possibility in my head for decades without me taking action. I finally took action took the pills, didn't really notice much of a difference. But now that I'm three days without the pills, now I notice the difference. Right? Now now I, I see how my, my brain is not really serving me as it just like flits from task to task, thought to thought, that uh, doing the simplest exercises 
you know, I become restless to, to do something different. And then if I jump up and do something different, in all likelihood, within two, five, ten minutes, I'll feel compelled to do something, something else. And also, I think, like, people writing from their autobiographical perspective and disguising fiction, it's not entirely a new genre of fiction that I've never heard of before. I've heard of plenty of weaves that sound very familiar to this in, like, previous generations. So, yeah. 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 Marcel Proust and the Richard de Tonsport Exactly. All of that, Matt. Yeah. All of that. And uh, and you can hear the same kind of loose reasoning when they're talking about autism and testosterone. Here's an example. That's interesting, because I, I have a question about autism, which com there's some common sort of perceptions about it, that it's also due to an excess of testosterone, which is why most autists are male. Uh -huh. And that it's, I've someone described it to me as um, like being excessively male. I mean, seriously, just listening to these brief snippets from the Red Scare. I mean, how, how does anyone with half a brain stand listening to this podcast? Brained and thus lacking kind of the more feminine instincts for like empathizing and like graciousness. Um, I'm sure that's part of it, testosterone levels. I hadn't heard of it being too high. And it's funny when I mentioned to people this this experience of a few days without Adderall, the the overwhelming reaction: Oh, you're just detoxing, bro! Right? You don't detox from five milligrams of Adderall, right? You might detox from three months of twenty milligrams a day of Adderall. You don't detox from two weeks of a total of ten milligrams a day of of Adderall. So no, I, I don't think it's detoxing. It is my normal state, and because I've had the experience of you know being medicated i i noticed the difference right quick uh, burst on israel see i'm i'm flitting around because i don't have my adderall casualties in gaza it's very hard to believe that especially on a day when one of our producers lost nine members of his family nine members of his family who were not members of hamas not members of the palestinian islamic jihad not members of any group just nine people just trying to live their lives that happened in northern gaza uh, in gaza city where a month ago we already asked all the civilians to leave. And one has to ask, yes, they had an ample opportunity to leave. And we don't want to see anyone caught up in the crossfire, but why didn't they heed the advice oh, and you leave can't the blame. area? You, they you had... can't blame them. There's now I fighting... don't blame them. Joining us now from Israel is Fox News correspondent Trey Yings. Trey, does it seem to you that Israel was trying to blame uh, the nine relatives living in the producer's aunt's house in northern Gaza? Hey, Howie, good morning. We know that they're talking about Ibrahim Daman, a CNN producer who is a fantastic journalist and his family member. Okay, it's not blame to point out that if people had made a different decision, they would not have had the result that happened, right? You choose to walk alone in a bad neighborhood, right? You dramatically increase the odds of something bad happening. If you get murdered, right, not blaming you by pointing that out, just noting that uh, actions have consequences, that choices have uh, consequences. Do I have any peer-reviewed studies that support this? No, I was explicitly just giving my uh, first-person uh, first experience. Didn't I scold Glib the other day for suggesting you get off Adderall for a few days to observe the difference? Yes, because it's not in, in my best interest to be without Adderall right now, it appears. right? I am not as high-functioning as I was on Adderall. If I had had a choice, if I hadn't lost half of my prescriptive pills, I wouldn't have gone off Adderall. But through the adversity of uh, losing my Adderall pills, right, there, there has been a gift in the adversity in that I more clearly understand the difference 
for me between being medicated and unmedicated. Okay, a little bit more here from the Red Scare podcast and critique by decoding the gurus. High, low. People. Or maybe low or some imbalance. Mm, I feel like low probably. Or free. Because there's a difference. A lot of autists are high T. Yeah, but there's like the, the idea of like free testosterone in your blood, which I don't fully oh, I follow or understand, <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe that's the thread, but... Maybe a bit of free speculation there, Chris. Yeah. So they've read stuff about the extreme male brain theory and testosterone. Yes. I'm in Byron Cohen. Yeah. And I think it is true, right, that uh, autism is much more prevalent in males than females, right? Much more prevalent amongst males than females. Questions about, you know, is part of that to do with the way that it presents in males being more readily diagnosable, but also the evidence around this being linked to testosterone levels. And I believe it's particularly higher levels of prenatal testosterone. So, mm -hmm. like, great, great point here by. Laponius, how could you be so scatterbrained as to lose your pills when you're on Adderall? Well, Adderall is not a magic key to life, right? It doesn't solve all your problems. I was scatterbrained. I put the pills in my pocket and then lost them, even though I was on Adderall at the time. So Adderall, you know, in decreases the chances that something stupid like this will happen, but it doesn't eliminate them. You don't lose your free will when you're on Adderall. But that was that was the first thing that I thought of when I realized I'd lost my pills. It's like, oh, when I share this with someone, what they're going to say to me is, how could you be so careless when you're on Adderall, right, to, to lose these pills? Oh, the other thing that gets me is the number of people who said, oh, you should start selling your, your pills, man. You can make a lot of money. It's like, no, that that's illegal. And... For for people who don't have a prescription for Adderall, for people who who don't have you know some disease that um, Adderall treats, right? They could have some negative reactions that I would bear some responsibility for if they took you know pills that I sold them. So why would I set myself up for for grief? In the amniotic yeah. fluid, yeah. So it's not that autistic people have high levels of testosterone; it's that when they were gestating, they could have been high level, high levels of testosterone in the amniotic fluid. It's a bit different, right? But you know, there are various versions of the theory and whatnot. But the general thing I would say is that it doesn't have strong evidence currently, and mm -hmm. more this clip highlights, and we'll see it in other clips, the way that they approach these kind of topics. In some respect, Matt, this is the way a lot of people approach this kind of topic. So Hal Lin has apparently been, you know, quite focused on this issue. But when you hear the way he talks about studies, or the way that you know he finds what Dasha and Anna say, you know, yeah, yeah, that's right it's kind of like that whatever like it's just very very superficial and vibe yeah. based i heard once from a friend yeah my friend saw that and yeah it's basically joe rogan epistemology yeah it's something you read once and you vaguely remember and you know it's a theory the evidence for it is pretty weak and i've kind of not even remembered it quite right anyway <laughs> so yeah so so i've spoken with my doctor i got a new prescription i think i'm getting the 20 milligram time release adderall so i look forward to that more intense adderall experience this gets tied in. This is something that's going to come up again later. But in a lot of these podcasts that we cover, Matt, the different types of figures that we cover, one recurrent pattern that you see in across a diverse range is this kind of fascination with esoteric and the presentation of the you know noble savage, the return to the way that humans are supposed to live, and this kind of naturalistic is good philosophy, right? You see that crop up a lot. You know the indigenous peoples have knowledge that is closer to the ideal form that humans should live, this kind of thing. And Paolin links this into stuff to do with autism. I liked what you were talking about earlier about how you think everyone's on a spectrum. <laughs> That's what I think. Like definitely now compared to our pre-agricultural ancestors, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everyone now is on the spectrum, I think. We're because on some kind of spectrum. Uh -huh, we're on all the spectrum, yeah. just 
autistic suicidal. <laughs> I'm feeble-minded <Yay>. myself. <laughs> Unstable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's intersectional. Because that one artist, George Catlin, hmm. in the 1800s, he visited 2 million Native Americans mm-hmm. and South American Natives. And he didn't meet one. He called it idiot or lunatic, quote mm-hmm. lunatic out of two million people and he said he heard of three or four you see the reference that it's intersectional actually i know that's kind of just a flippant comment but i do think that is the horseshoe thing coming in that they are fluent in that way so the the good thing about being off adderall in addition to recognizing the difference of myself properly medicated and unmedicated is that i can have coffee so i've never really been a regular coffee drinker but i noticed the one time i or two or three times that I tried having caffeine and Adderall, then I just couldn't sleep. But uh, Friday night, I went to bed before 7 p.m. And I didn't get up until about 4.30 p.m. I had more than nine hours of sleep. And uh, last night I was in bed by 8 p.m. up at uh, 3 a.m. So I probably got six hours of of sleep. But uh, this morning, just before the show, I had my first cup of coffee in about... uh, two weeks and it is glorious it was glorious i'm just really enjoying it i had it just before i started the show so caffeine should be out of my system by the time i go to bed so it shouldn't affect my my sleep but i find that uh adderall and coffee not a good combo for for my sleep of thinking you know that oh yes postmodern yeah. And- oh yeah and, and if you think back to some of those other clips you played there chris they're very much au fait with the very sophisticated kind of discourse language that you normally would associate with super ultra progressive people yeah yeah but there's a horseshoe going on where the levels of irony and skepticism and so on has reached such a point that there's a bit of a horseshoe at play but yeah it was interesting his theory that we're all autistic now to some degree or another the modern world has made us this way and the proof of this is some first-hand account of some early pioneer who met a lot of native americans and didn't meet many was it idiots is the word that he used but anyway, and idiots. yeah so that's strong evidence actually my, i went and looked up about this guy. Of course you did. Yeah, because I did. (laughs) This is what I do. So he's an interesting character because he was somebody who went around and produced a whole bunch of portraits of Indigenous American people, Native Americans, and on the one hand, presented them in an overall positive light and kind of documenting that they're a very varied collection of different people and, you know, that they have these traditions which are beautiful and they take care of landscapes and all this kind of thing. But it's very much also associated with the kind of noble savage presentation from that period, right? And it's very much regarding them as the repository of wisdom that can cure the ills of the Western mind, which is a very common motif. Yeah, and I'm sure, Chris, so this is an aside, but I'm sure, like, I know it's, it's easy to mock that, right? People coming from the sort of early industrial age, looking at people living in more natural environments, moving around. I, I can imagine, I, mean, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine them making valid comparisons of, of people being, you know, physically fitter and seemingly more relaxed and stuff like that compared to the sort of people. Well, one comparison between people in first world and people in second and third world is that uh, people in third world and and second world tend to have much better posture right if you are in school or you have a job where you're sitting most of the days for almost everybody it significantly deforms their posture you can typically see a dramatic difference in the posture and use that uh, 18 year olds have it's inferior compared to what 15 year olds have which in turn tends to be consistently inferior to what 12-year-olds have compared to 9-year-olds, that uh, sitting in, in desks just deforms people, while cultures where they don't have chairs, right, they tend to be much more free in their use of themselves, and they don't have the, the deformed, contorted posture filled with all sorts of unnecessary tension and compression and just you know weird, interfering 
patterns going on in, in their body where they're just overly held, compressed, taut, held down by these patterns that, that develop from excessive amount of uh, sitting. In some industrial town in the Midwest, you know, going off to the factory and that. I mean, there is that, right? You can focus on that aspect, but a lot of it is just exoticism. And I absolutely would not trust his assessment of how many people of course, are suffering from mental illness. In the... <laughs> Lavinia says, I'm worried, bro. Caffeine Adderall synergy effect, bro. It's like Chum Belushi doing speedballs. Hey, we don't find 40 passed out at the Chateau Marmont one day. You won't. There's, there's no way that I could afford a suite there. <laughs> you know, and, and, and there's a lot about them having kind of special breathing techniques, which allow them, you know, to live healthier lives and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's very... Well, the special breathing techniques would be they don't contort and compress around their lungs. And so the lungs have more re room, right, to breathe in and out. And so if you've got excessive muscular tension around your, your neck, all right, in your neck, for example, there are more, more joints in your neck than anywhere else in your body, bone connecting with bone. So if your neck is tight, compressed, taut, all right, uh, you're going to send layers of compression all throughout your body. If you have unnecessary tension in your shoulders and your chest and your upper middle back, right, that's going to repress the amount of room that your, your lungs have to, to breathe much the exact same as the theosophists just like a different target sure. but Kyle Lynn treats it as well we can take his account as very accurate because sure. and that shows that pre-agricultural societies just didn't have significant levels of autism or you know mental illnesses associated with that yeah, yeah. now that's the past Matt what about the future has some projections about the future I wanted to ask you about this quote from your essay um where if I can find it um, the United States which is of 2011 had the highest first day in infant death rate in the industrialized world might succumb to autism um becoming a cautionary example for other countries. The autism rate here has doubled on average of every five years since 1970. At this rate, the majority of American boys will be autistic by 2036, and by around 2045, most children here will be nonverbal. Are you being sarcastic or facetious, or do you think that's actually true? The nonverbal thing? Yeah. I calculated it. That's yeah. A lot of times, like, I, I calculated it. Yeah, it's true. Okay. I mean... I buy it. Yeah, I said it's, like, on pace to do that. Mm -hmm. Unless... Well, does, is there any... There's no way to remedy it. And there you, is. The lonely-causing... So uh, Tucker Carlson just did a long interview with Alex Jones, who's had his Twitter account restored by Elon Musk. I have ambivalent feelings about that. I had ambivalent feelings about the widespread banning of Alex Jones, of ambivalent feelings of him being brought back. So because I'm torn, I don't really care either way, whether he has his account re restored or has his account taken away. I mean, the level of irresponsible things that uh, Alex Jones has said, the, the terror that he's inflicted on grieving parents from, from Sandy Hook, it's so awful that I can understand a good case being made for keeping him off Twitter. On the other hand, I can equally understand the case for restoring him to Twitter. So I'm just right in the middle, stuck with you. Ability is our environment, yeah. Okay, so the truth in that there, Chris, is that rates of diagnosis of autism in the US and to some degree elsewhere have been increasing a lot over recent decades, haven't they? That's right. But what he's doing there, very scientifically, Talon is extrapolating out, assuming that there will be a consistent increase from a growth, right? Like he's projecting an exponential increase. So by the same thing, you could look at the production of some new type of cheese or some popular sweet and say, look, the production of prime drink is doubling year on year 
for you know the past five years or whatever it's been out. And if this continues by the year 2050, the earth will just be comprised solely of prime drinks. You know, you can't do that. And also, I don't trust his calculations. No, or... okay. but he did say it was an extrapolation. It was a forecast when they when they pushed him on it. You know, he, he calculated it several times, but he did slip in there that he was extrapolating. Right, but that's the thing, Matt. Really, the whole, the US is going to be non-verbal by the mid 2000s. I know they're expressing their like skepticism over that claim as well. But I do feel that shows quite how seriously you should take yeah. some of the other claims made by Talon. Of course, of course. I mean, he makes several mistakes. I mean, the least of which probably is the extrapolation because you could say, give him the benefit of the doubt and says he knows that he's just saying at present rates. But I guess what he's ignoring is that he's assuming that the increased rates of diagnosis are entirely due to an increased underlying prevalence of autistic symptomatology in the population, where I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that a lot of the increase would be due to broader diagnostic criteria. Increase attention to it and awareness of the issue. Yes, yeah. this is part of the problem because there's an association where people are like, look, the developed societies, which are, you know, wealthy and have modern medicine, that's where you're seeing these increase in autism. Yeah, but that's right. If you're living in the 1800s. And ah, yes, it was uh, John D. Rockefeller, I believe, who at one point in the late 19th century had 2% of the American GN GNP, right, under his own control. So Jeff Bezos has you know, 0.006, something, you know, tiny infinitesimal amount when compared to the amount of uh, GNP that uh, John D. Rockefeller had under his control. In London, you would get a diagnosis of any mental condition if you were literally taking off all your clothes and running down the street, attacking people, right? Yeah. And they'll drag you off, throw you in a dungeon, <laughs> give you some diagnosis. But barring that, you know, people just, there wasn't the awareness and you know, people had bigger fish to fry in terms of their problems, in terms of whether or not somebody was showing symptoms of autism. I mean, look, it's certainly possible that there are some environmental features at play. Who knows? It could be microplastics, <laughs> whatever. But, you know, other things like people having children later in life, right? It could be older parental age, things like that could be going on. All of those things, obviously, do not extrapolate. From what I could see of looking at the reviews about the evidence, one of the strongest supporters predictors is pregnancy in older age, right? But as a result, <laughs> there's no time spent on that in this particular discussion. And you heard there at the end, you know, the Talon said there is a way to reverse this dystopic future. And it comes from Kaplan. He references, it, you know, what Kaplan showed from the indigenous Americans was that if you just treat it correctly, it doesn't manifest. You, you don't find anybody with autism. So here is a little bit of that discussion. Kaplan, you mentioned when he was in the field, like embedded with the Native Americans, often came across the theory that the reason that there were less like deaf, dumb, and mute and insane people in their population is because they like called, like killed off the feeble-minded ones. Mm -hmm. ones at first. Yeah. And you say that that's actually not the case. And he, in fact, discovered that when those rare instances did occur, those people were treated with dignity and almost elevated to the level of deities because they were considered to be like a special sign from God. Because mm -hmm. they were so rare. Yeah. And... And I'm sure they did function that way as special things that would just they would have a different perspective than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And and they would figure out a way to. How, how, how do people how do people stand listening to Red Scare? It's just such a mor moronic level of conversation. OK, let's uh, try to get uh, some Mike Benz here. He's interviewed on a podcast. It was in February 2017, just one month into Trump's uh, Trump's term, that the Atlanta Council began its social media censorship world tour. The Atlanta Council gets annual funding from the, from all four branches of the U.S. military, you know, the Air Force, the the Navy, the the Army, and the Marines. It gets funding from the State Department. It gets funding from CIA cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy. It has seven former CIA chiefs on its board of directors, but it was threatened by the Trump administration because it had a private uh, cooperation agreement with Burisma, the Biden family's uh, natural gas 
company, essentially, uh, if you will, in in Ukraine, and they were threatened by Trump's foreign policy, potentially um, cutting off oxygen to the uh, ongoing coup that the Pentagon and the UK Foreign Office were waging in Ukraine. Welcome to another episode of Counterculture, the show that stands at the intersection of reason and faith in the battle against sentimentality. What is the censorship industrial complex? How does it work? Wait, how do you have a show based around faith and against sentimentality? I mean, isn't there a considerable element of sentiment in in faith? And how can it be stopped? One might think that Americans who believe in free minds and free expression would be more exercised about the revelations published in the Twitter files documenting the collusion between federal and state governments and social media platforms to manipulate political speech online. One might think Republicans would take judicial notice of Harvard-educated psychologist Robert Epstein, whose research suggested that Google's rigging of its search results pushed between 2.5 and 10.5 million votes to Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election. Epstein has since continued to warn about the information engineering of search engines like Google and social media platforms like Facebook. One might think these things, but so far one would be wrong, largely. Epstein's recommendations have not been adopted. Efforts to repeal Section 230 protections for social media platforms haven't gone anywhere. Perhaps they shouldn't. The complaints continue, but so does the censorship industrial complex's push to solidify its position as the arbiter of what can be communicated. As our guest on this edition of Counterculture has described, in anticipation of SCOTUS's decision in the Missouri v. Biden case, the powers that be and want to be are already taking evasive action to perpetuate their positions as our information overlords. If information is indeed power, attention should be paid to how much power is concentrated in how few hands, right? So here's my primary critique of this kind of talk. All right, we did not evolve to be gullible. If we were as gullible as this guy is inferring, right, we wouldn't have survived. All right, we wouldn't be here today. But uh, people tend to be pretty good at decoding and seeing through other people's attempts to manipulate them. Mike Benz is a former State Department official and founder of the Foundation for Freedom Online, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, and then now 2024 with the uh, uh, with with NewsGuard and what they're attempting to do in advance of the Missouri v. Biden administration, so they can continue the work that they've set upon over the last uh, seven to eight years now. So, so I just I I want to understand the progression, make sure we're not missing anything. So, I mean, can you give us your perspective on how this proceeded from Trump's election to? where we find ourselves today generally, and then we'll dig into the specifics? Well, the big picture is that almost all of our institutions are dominated by the liberal left, right? So that that is the nature of reality. And so that's why conservatives frequently feel oppressed, particularly in the realms of, of culture and institutions. Yeah, so you had Trump's election in November 2016, The censorship industry really started uh, a couple of years before that. In 2014, when you had the Crimea annexation and the sort of Russia backstopped counter coup in Maidan in Ukraine in 2014, you had the military industrial complex, you know, the the Pentagon, the State Department, 
the CIA, the intelligence services, both on the U.S. side and on the Europe side, uh, begin to see information as a military domain. Uh, NATO declared this doctrine of from tanks to tweets. And then so you already had a portion of what we often refer to as the American deep state uh, tilting towards building censorship capacities and censorship interlinkages with the tech companies from 2014 to 2016. When okay, quick uh, quick note here, because I don't have my Adderall, I'm quite scattered, just jumping all over the place. I'm the victim here, because I was so careless that I... <laughs> Who moved my Adderall? All right, that's going to be my memoir. Who moved my bloody Adderall, mate? What is the status of this American journalist, Joe Biden? Yes, Gonzalo Lira. Whenever I hear the, the word Coach Redpill or Gonzalo Lira, I immediately think journalist, just honest seeker of truth. So he tweeted, what, July 31, I'm trying to get out of Ukraine, seek political asylum in Hungary. Either I'll cross the border and make it to safety or I'll be disappeared by the Kiev regime. So he was anti-Ukraine while he was living in Ukraine, while Ukraine was under attack from Russia. Right. He was incredibly reckless. That, that's crazy. Right. There is a YouTuber, Rita Notes, he violated Ukrainian criminal code. He denied various massacres and Russian attacks against civilians. Well, Russia in about 18 months of the war hasn't killed as many civilians as Israel has in the Gaza Strip. I'm not condemning Israel. I'm not praising Russia at different situations, but I still find it a helpful context. Elon Musk says this note is being gamed by state actors. Interesting to figure out who they are. And here's one of Gonzalo Lira's old videos, talks about going through a messy divorce. Especially when you're young, it's easy to fall in with whores. Especially when you're young, you know, you can get hurt badly by a whore. Uh, the lucky thing... Well, guess what? A lot of young men don't fall for whores, right? Generally speaking, I would expect that trad Christians, trad Jews, trad Muslims, people with their head screwed on straight, don't fall in with whores. It's people who make all sorts of lousy decisions, all right? Like people who live in Ukraine and while Ukraine is being attacked by Russia, make video after video, social media post after social media post belittling Ukraine, all right? People who make those sort of crazy decisions fall in with whores, all right? It's not like anyone just falls in with whores. It's only people who are sufficiently broken that they feel comfortable on the same level as whores is that see if you're young and you get hurt by a whore burned by a whore well you've got the rest of your life to not make that same mistake you see what i'm saying that's the only good thing about getting involved with a whore when you're young if you get involved with a whore when you're older you can kiss your life goodbye let's have a show of hands okay let's uh, get back to the, In the uh, comment section how many men are the ex-husbands of whores how many men? You know, in in this audience who follows my channel, have uh, had encounters with these whores, huh? these meretricious, slatternly women. How many of them married one of them up? How many of you guys had a kid, maybe? And fingers oh, crossed, shut up. it's yours, by the way. Had a God kid? damn you! Okay. I mean, Coach Red Pill obviously appeals to a resentful bunch of losers. If you have problems with whores in your life, that reflects you. That's on you. That's like uh, Hunter Biden saying Republicans are trying to kill me. Right? The reverse is true. 
Hunter Biden's own terrible behavior was trying to kill him. Hunter Biden was trying to kill Hunter Biden. And if you have a whole problem, that's primarily reflective of you and what's going on with you and what you're attracted to and what you're courting and what you're looking for and what you're bringing into your life, right? Whores aren't just taking up residence in your life for no reason whatsoever, right? It's something about you that brings them into your life. Right, back to Mike Benz. When Brexit happened and then Trump was elected, this, you know, this hit the gas, basically. It all exploded and, uh, and came, came westward to the U.S. Um, immediately, the linchpin in 2016 was Russiagate. The, the idea, this, this CIA concocted lie that Russia had materially interfered with the U.S. presidential election and tilted it for Trump. This was something that was used as, as the foreign policy and yes, that's a, a good point. That is what happened. National security predicate to create the initial censorship infrastructure. Most people think about Russiagate as being the Mueller investment. And Josh Randall says, love you, Luke. That is a total feminist take. What, you think whores just descend on men for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the men themselves? There are a lot of men I know who've never had a whore in their home. All right. There has to be something about you that attracts the whores into your life or dangerous people into your life. Right? We bear substantial responsibility for the type of people that we bring into our life. Investigation on the FBI side. That, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, really, Russiagate's lingering damage was that it provided the predicate to create this massive censorship launch. And Josh Randall says, hoes love attractive men. Yeah, uh, parasites take up residence where they can. But how come there are a lot of men who've never had a whore in their life? Right? Just because uh, hoes are attracted to you doesn't mean that you allow them residence in your life. Right? Men have agency. Right? Men are responsible for their choices. You can place yourself in a position where you're going to encounter a lot of whores where you can place yourself, place yourself in a different position where you're unlikely to encounter whores. You're not likely to encounter whores at church. You're not likely to encounter whores at church-sponsored events. You're not likely to encounter whores when you socialize with people you know from church or from synagogue. Right? You encounter whores at certain places with a certain crowd, and you're more likely to allow them into your life when you are at a certain level that is predisposed towards bringing parasites and whores into your life. Laundering system with the national security agencies, with the federal government, and with the tech companies. What percentage of the gross sale of books do authors get? It varies. Uh, I think uh, on average it'd be under 5%. Ostensibly to stop a hostile foreign nation state from influencing American hearts and minds. Worthy is the man who can say no to hoes throwing themselves at them. Yes, most men cannot say no to a whore throwing themselves at him. But many men lead lives where they don't encounter hoes throwing themselves at him. All right, if you don't go to bars, you don't go to dance clubs, you don't go to secular parties, if you lead an upstanding life, right, you are unlikely to have whores throwing themselves at you. All right, if you're hanging out in Las Vegas hotels, all right, you go to the bar at the Venetian, all right, very likely that uh, a whore will throw herself at you. But if you're going to church on Sunday, church picnic Sunday afternoon, 
you're working a respectable job during the week, you're hanging out with respectable people doing respectable things, right? Less likely to encounter hoes. When Russiagate fell apart in 2019, in that summer, when Mueller took the stand and had... Look, I'm not opposed to talking to hoes, but it's dangerous. What I say you must do is you must deny them your essence. I understand you're a man, but do not share with hoes your essence. Nothing. Uh, all of that censorship infrastructure, all that collaboration between the tech companies and the CIA, the tech companies and the State Department, the tech companies and DHS, FBI, um, the Pentagon, the National Science Foundation, HHS, you name it, all of that was redirected from domestic, from foreign disinformation to domestic disinformation. And they initially basically described this as a cybersecurity threat. This is all they had at the time. They basically likened it to hacking. And Elliot notes Hunter Biden gave his ATM card to Hose and they drained his accounts. They, they drained other parts of Hunter Biden, too. So when you make yourself vulnerable, all right, people will tend to take advantage of you. Right? If people can get your work services at a low wage rate, all right, they will pay you a low rate. People will, generally speaking, take from you what you offer them. Uh, women who are easy will you know, have a lot of guys, you know, hitting on them and trying to get them into bed because they put off a vibe, right? Certain women don't get sexually harassed, right? Because certain women put off a formidable, you know, respectable, respectful demeanor. And so guys wouldn't even think of saying something inappropriate to them. Women who get hit on by guys in gross ways, right? Right. That reflects something about the women, right? It's a vibe that they're putting off through how they conduct themselves, how they speak, how they dress, right? Some women don't get sexually harassed who are attractive, but they are so formidable that a man you know, knows that uh, that's not going to fly. Hacking hearts and minds that, that, you know, just like our cybersecurity agencies deal with hacking threats from... I had a lot of hoes in my life because I was writing about the sex industry, but I generally denied them my essence and I denied them a place in my real life, all right? My, my real life was in Judaism and Jewish events and Los Angeles Press Club events, and I rarely brought hoes to these events, all right? I, I didn't bring hoes to synagogue, and I didn't bring hoes to the LA Press Club, you know, except on the, the rarest of occasions. So you can go out there and mix with a very, you know, exotic and degenerate world, right? You can take drugs, but it doesn't mean you bring your drug dealer home to meet your mother. Right. You may play with hoes, but that doesn't mean you, you bring them home to meet your mother. Iran or North Korea, um, now suddenly they were dealing with sort of psychological hacking threats. And so they create, we had these permanent government bureaucracies. Created. So I remember I had an intimate uh, thing with, with porn star Kendra Jade, and she felt a great sense of kinship with me, that we were like two equally broken people who were interested in books and we're interested in the truth. And so we had the same vibration, guys. All right, we, we got along really well. We were good friends even after the, the sex bit ended, right? Because we had, you know, approximately the, the same level of maturity, the same, the same you know, level of uh, psychological health, all right? And we essentially trauma bonded, right? We, we both came from dysfunctional childhoods. We were both doing the best we could to get our needs met. I writing on the porn industry, she was performing in the porn industry, but precisely because we're at the same level of emotional maturity that we got along so well.
created, starting inside DHS, but then metastasizing throughout the whole federal government between 2019 and 2020, that continued to have this coercive relationship, putting their boot on the neck of the tech platforms. It really wasn't until 2022. I mean, that continued exponentially from 2019 to 2022 with this domestic censorship infrastructure. And then you had a series of sort of counter free speech counteroffensive successes. You had the Disinformation Governance Board getting crushed within a week, sort suddenly the sort of sleeping giant of political awakenness, if you will, happened with Chuck Grassley's committee and and Josh Hawley, and there was sort of coordinated pressure to kill that. Then you had Elon Musk, in short order, announcing his acquisition of Twitter. Then you had the House turning over from Democrat to Republican. This allowed all the investigations and hearings that continued for the past 18 months. That also assisted the Twitter files, because suddenly the Twitter files could actually have a congressional hearing as well. So you know, we have a lot of momentum right now. The issue is, is the empire is, uh, is striking back. So just going back to that period, 2016 to 20. And a question in the chat. What is Mike Ben's official job? Bro, he's the executive director of the Foundation for Freedom Online, which is essentially his own foundation, right? So he's managed to fundraise and essentially works for himself. He used to work in the State Department. And he says he's the author of the unpublishable monstrosity Weapons of Mass Deletion. Right, but his his organization is Foundation for Freedom Online. Twenty is basically uh, Trump's term. Um, so after Russia inclusion, all the stuff that was happening at uh, that time that we were fighting, it, it felt like we were fighting tactics that social media companies were using, whether it was shadow banning or just straight up deplatforming, banning outright, like Trump ultimately was banned from Twitter. Right? I mean. Uh, that that period and some of what we saw there in terms of the beginnings of of next phase uh, manipulation of information. Um, it- so I remember when I was called in for a meeting with this Orthodox rabbi, and he he said to me after I justified my writing on the porn industry, he says, "I'm sure it's all very academic, but we can't have that in our community." It's uh, and he had this look of distaste on his face, and he says it's it's tame, it's it's impure. The the chat says Luke was doing embedded journalism, total hero, and uh, autistic merit. Though it's all research done for sex journalism with complete academic detachment, but still we cannot have that in our community. All right, so you often hear the phrase toxic, and so. Talking to someone like Nick Fuentes or Richard Spencer, that is supposedly toxic, and it is toxic for certain people, all right? A certain worldview, all right? What you find holy, all right? That which is the opposite of holy in your worldview is going to be considered toxic. Right? If you take for granted that marriage is a heterosexual institution between one man and one woman, you will find promotion of same-sex marriage toxic. If you believe that the U.S. military should be a heterosexual institution, you will find promotion of you know, allowing same-sex attractive people, LGBTQ, into the U.S. military. You will find that promotion toxic. If you believe in sort of rigorous social welfare spending where only the deserving poor uh, get, get uh, money and help, then you will find promotion of you know massive social welfare distribution. You will find that toxic. 
Do you strongly believe that sex should be only within heterosexual marriage, such as uh, the 12-step group Sexaholics Anonymous, then you will find any kind of laughter or humor or discussion of sex outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. You will find all that talk toxic, right? If you strongly believe in God, you'll find all discussion that denies or casts doubt on the existence of God. You will find that toxic if you strongly believe that God gave the Torah to man and that every word of the Torah comes from God. You will find all doubt and denial of that belief toxic. So when you find things toxic, it's because they they dirty your hero system. And there's no way to live a life without a hero system. You may intellectually be aware of the fictional nature of your own hero system, but the way that we viscerally experience life, certain things are just right and certain things are wrong, right? Certain things are heroic and other things are cowardly. What's right and wrong, heroic and cowardly, will depend upon your hero system. And, and that which you find offensive or toxic is that which impurifies, which denies the validity of your hero system. So when when a person of religious faith lives in a pluralistic community, right, it's harder for him to carry on with his with his practice of his faith because so many people around him don't share it. And the existence of all these alternative hero systems around him will tend to make him question the possible fictional nature of his own hero system. So it's a lot more difficult, for example, for young young boys, uh, teenagers, young men who are Catholic in America to want to go on to become priests, as opposed to if you're living in Italy, where Roman Catholicism is essentially the only religion. If, if Roman Catholicism is the only religion, then it's going to seem much more natural to take for granted the validity of the Roman Catholic hero system and the vocation of priest will seem much more normal, natural, and healthy. But then you get a pluralistic society of the United States of America where you can choose to be Christian or gay or Muslim or convert to Orthodox Judaism, all right, in, in such a fluid society where you meet all sorts of really nice people who do not hold by your hero system, it will inevitably tend to erode the level of commitment to a particular hero system. And so we're seeing throughout the West an inevitable erosion of commitment to traditional religion because people on a day-in, day-out basis meet so many good, kind people who do not share their hero system, who are, who are not religious. You, you may very well meet you know, secular people at work, atheists at work, homosexuals at work, who are finer, kinder, more decent, uh, seem to lead you know, more upstanding lives than many people you know in your church or synagogue, and that inevitably erodes the foundations of faith. So to compensate for that, you get movements such as Christian nationalism, which is really just Christians or people who have sympathy for Christian civilization wanting to try to hold on to this civilization against this onrushing tide that is non-Christian or anti-Christian. And so to even maintain some semblance of Christian civilization, you have to go to much more extreme efforts than you did where Christianity was the only alternative. I, I grew up a Christian. All my friends were Protestant. All right, It, it was the only conceivable hero system in, in my upbringing. But then at age 14, we got a TV, and I started watching more TV, and then I became exposed to more and more hero systems, and so I started practically becoming an atheist, and it was a lot easier for me to just you know, follow my own urges. And so people have 
very strong urges and without a, usually a strong commitment to a hero system, we're, we're much more likely to indulge our urges, particularly if we live in a big city and there's much more anonymity and we can you know, get away with playing around and uh, violating the norms that we might have been raised with. So if you live in a close-knit community where everybody knows what's, what's going on with each other, right, you have much less room to indulge in, consider, or, or practice things outside your hero system. People keep an eye on each other. Once you're no longer embedded in a high-commitment, close-knit, highly identifying in-group, right, you start you know, losing your commitment. So it's, it's taken for granted, for example, in Orthodox Judaism, that people move outside of the community, right? Even if you visit uh, Australia, for example. When I went to Australia for a three-week vacation in, in May of 2014, all sorts of people in the Orthodox Jewish community, when I came back, said, did you give it all up, right? There was kind of a sense that if you go three weeks without living in the you know, burning, beating heart of a high-intensity, high-commitment in-group of Orthodox Judaism, that you'll be so much more susceptible to giving it up. And you see the effects of COVID, right? Where people got out of the habit of going to church or synagogue, and a substantial number of them never returned. Right? They never returned to religion because religion requires you know, effort and practice that is not not necessarily, you know, biologically easy. And so when you don't question your level of commitment to your religion, then it's a lot easier to keep doing it. But anything that causes you to question your commitment to your religion will inevitably diminish your commitment to your religion. You meaning a mass group, right? Certain individuals it did not diminish, right? For, for many people, even most people who are regularly going to church or synagogue prior to COVID, Right, are continuing to go to church and synagogue after COVID, but a substantial number, probably at least twenty-five percent, you know, have not returned to church or synagogue at anything the level of commitment that they had. Because once you interrupt that commitment, once you have to start considering the nature and practice of your hero system, once any doubt creeps in, once any possibility comes into your life that maybe you don't have to do the, these practices and carry on these commitments anymore. Right. Once, once you start opening up that, that level of freedom, right, many people will, will drop out of that commitment. Did my father actively resist bringing TV into the home? My, it was my father's idea to bring TV into his home. So I, I've been thinking recently, what was my father like at my age? So I am now 57, and I've been thinking, now how many more years do I have left of you know, high-intensity work? Because I remember my father started significantly slowing down into his 60s. So I'm now 57. My father at age 57, that was 1986. So in 1986, I was 20. So my father, when I was 20 and he was 57, was still highly ambitious. He was still working seemingly as hard as ever. But in 1980, when I was 14 and my father was 51, it was his idea to bring a TV into his home because he was in the middle of this giant theological controversy. And in the end of 1979, the church withdrew my father from the Seventh-day Adventist College, Pacific Union College in Angwin in the Napa Valley in California. And they brought him to Washington, D.C. so that he could prepare a defense of his controversial views, denying essentially the chosen special nature of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he was put on trial by the church for a gathering of the top church theologians and administrators at Glacier View in August of uh, 1980. 
So for the eight months prior to that Glacier View conference, my father had to prepare a defense of his views. He felt under a lot of pressure, and he, my mother, stepmother, and my father now living alone in Washington, D.C. They left me behind in the Napa Valley so that I could finish eighth grade with my friends. So because I wasn't around, they felt more open to getting a TV so that my father had a way of um, relaxing. My father finds it very difficult to relax, found it very difficult to relax, never had any hobbies. He wasn't particularly interested in interacting with people unless he could instruct them or unless they shared his interests, which were quite narrow, basically evangelical Christian theology and preventative health, lest they shared his interests and they had level of knowledge and expertise in these areas that he could respect. So this was an exceedingly small number of people. So my father, generally speaking, could not relax around people. He did not enjoy their company and he had no hobbies. So he thought maybe watching old movies, right, when they were still under the Hayes Code. So my father liked the movies that he knew from growing up, 1930s and 40s movies that he thought were wholesome. So he got a TV, something like uh, January 1980, and they started watching you know, old movies as a way to relax. Then I joined them in June of 1980, and it's like, whoa, we've got a TV. And when my parents were out of the house, you know, I'd watch as much TV as possible. And so we, we brought the TV back with us to Auburn, California, when we moved back to Auburn in September of 1980. And so the world of TV with its you know, sexiness and excitement and this worldly pleasure just absolutely captivated me and significantly hacked away at my willingness to commit to a religion, particularly now that we're outside of an organized Seventh-day Adventist community. My father would tell people that we belong to the Invisible Church of Jesus Christ. Well, the Invisible Church of Jesus Christ didn't have a lot of youth programs. All right, there wasn't a concrete, real-life community that I could belong to in the invisible church of Jesus Christ and, and what we had as a, an evangelical Christian community that my father's evangelical Christian foundation, Good News Unlimited, developed in Auburn was just a very pale imitation of the quality and intensity of the high commitment, high in-group identifying life that I had at Seventh-day Adventist College campuses at Pacific Union College and Avondale College that I was familiar with. So my my religious circle was diminished. The intensity and vibrancy of the community I was in was much diminished. And instead, I was increasingly uh, seduced by the you know, attractiveness of the outside secular world. So I need to take a short break here. Watch something that's good for you. Institutional sources of information and the uh, kind of complementary credulity towards alternative or, or fringe um, figures and theories. Uh, uh, there's also aspects like the, the way that the conspiracies are dealt with being epistemically self-sealing. So any evidence that comes out in support of the theory is accepted. Any that's ambiguous is interpreted as positive and negative evidence or missing evidence is just taken as evidence that they're very good at covering up what, what they do. So you can't uh, kind of get away with it. And there's other things about overactive pattern recognition and so on. But what this means is that conspiracy theories are not just theories about conspiracies. They're a particular kind of reasoning. Um, uh, and that's why you, you see these kind of uh, patterns when you look at QAnon communities or, or conspiracy communities, or you listen to the kind of reasoning that uh, you would hear recently at RFK Jr.'s 
health policy roundtable. Uh, nicely, Wikipedia gets this right. So if you read the Wikipedia entry it, uh, on conspiracy theory, it highlights that they are not just normal conspiracy. Um, so what about the contemporary environment? So I think most people have the perception, or a lot of people have the perception, that conspiracy theories have um, become more prevalent and more influential with the rise of QAnon, and particularly in America, and uh, with the pandemic leading to an increase in anti-vaccine sentiment. Um, there's also the fact that uh, populist politicians have become increasingly prevalent, and they tend to endorse conspiracy theories, or at least use them for their purposes. purposes. Um, worth remembering that part of the reason that Donald Trump became a well-known uh, political figure of some sorts was because of his endorsement of the uh, Obama not being born in America conspiracy. Um, and the social media platforms also play a part. Uh, there's too many examples to, to go through, but the, the general trend is uh, not just Elon Musk's Twitter, which is doing a good job of facilitating conspiracism, but the internet in general facilitates the spread of conspiracism, um, from COVID misinformation to uh, from individuals, uh, anti-vax communities, but, but also from state agencies like the Internet Research uh, Agency during the 2016 uh, election. And uh, there are researchers that have highlighted the role that alternative... So I remember I was saying with, with a friend in Pacific Union College, May 1980, and I got a call from my parents with, with the news that we would not be returning to Pacific Union College, no matter the results of the Glacier View controversy, we would not return to PUC. We were very possibly moving to England, where my father would get a church to, to pastor. And... I felt so sad. I mean, I I love Pacific Union College. It was the closest that I got as a then 14-year-old to feeling normal. And particularly those six months that I was living away from my parents was the closest in my life I'd ever gotten to feel normal. The, the happiest times in my childhood were away from my parents. When I was living with my parents, I would inevitably be affected by their own dysfunction. When I got to live and be around people who are healthier, I became much more normal and healthy, and I, I developed more friendships, deeper friendships. I, like, I started thriving, and I, I loved Pacific Union College. I just loved the Seventh-day Adventist community there. It was a whole different type of Seventh-day Adventism from what I knew in Australia. The Seventh-day Adventism that I knew in Australia was extremely strict, uh, punitive, uh, people you know, at war with each other over theology, it was, it was painful frequently. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist version that I encountered at Pacific Union College was much more relaxed, much happier, much normal, more normal, more, more tolerant, uh, more a part of, of wider society. Uh, but the dominant difference was Seventh-day Adventists I knew at Pacific Union College were dominantly happy people who were probably largely in Seventh-day Adventism for the lifestyle. The Adventists that I knew at Avondale College, by and large, were not people who radiated happiness. Mm. And then I remember getting to Glacier View, the, the uh, week-long trial of my father, and my, my, my parents thought it was a good idea to bring me along. 
the person who was the head of the Seventh-day Adventist Church at that time, Elder Neil Wilson, ran into him at the airport. He did not like the idea of me, me coming along. thought it was a terrible idea because he had organized everything. He was a very canny political player. So the results of the Glacier View Conference were already ordained because this guy was such a sharp political player that my father was going to be disfellowshipped from the Seventh-day Adventist ministry and essentially pushed out. And I remember my first evening at or first day at Glacier View, I went and jumped in the pool and one of the leading church administrators said, you know, who are you? I, I don't know you. And I said, I'm the son of the man you are nailing to the cross. <laughs> and so I, I had inherited and imitated the hyperbolic, you know, attention-seeking, hardball, you know, rhetorical approach of, of my father. And I mean, this poor man, he just, he got this, you know, absolutely sickened look across his, his face. Yeah, Luke wished they could all be California girls. But I lived largely in Northern California from 1977 until 1993. But I had all these fantasies about Southern California women. I just thought they would be so gorgeous and so sexually available. Because in 1982, you got MTV. And I started watching a lot of MTV, whatever a teacher would want to you know, shut us up. She'd just like turn on the MTV channel in high school and you know we just all watch in absolute rapt attention and so i developed all these fantasies about southern california and southern california girls as a result of all the mtv videos that were shot in southern california and the women just looked you know so alluring i finally moved to southern california in the fall of 1988 and even though i have often been a womanizer I've never been willing to put much effort into my womanizing. I have almost always settled for women who are low maintenance. I've never been willing to shoot for a high maintenance woman. I just did not want the the aggravation. So I, I found a, a relatively you know low maintenance uh, you know a Asian woman who you know who became my first lover and first girlfriend. And who would hang out with me despite me being, you know, quite ill during my one year at uh, at uh, UCLA. And even when I started regaining my health, I was never willing to put much effort or to spend much money in in my womanizing. I always just wanted it easy. Now, when I became really enthusiastic about Judaism, of course, I took it to an extreme. So starting in 1990, I became more and more enthusiastic for, for Judaism, and the first thing I decided, no more premarital sex for me. So even though I had you know, a different girlfriend who was willing to go, go there, uh, I wouldn't go there. And uh, she would tell me, hey, you know, when you said and did these things, you know, I was willing to let you have anything you wanted, but I, I wouldn't go there as part of my new commitment to Judaism. The problem with this is that uh, it helped isolate me. So I didn't have much human connection. I lived with my parents while I was largely bedridden by chronic fatigue syndrome. And finally, a graduate student in ethics at Loma Linda University said to me, someone I'd known from my Seventh Adventist childhood in Northern California in my teens, he said to me, I think the thing that you were most missing is community. And I was. I was terribly lonely. So I started placing and answering all these singles ads, which was really good for me. I, I, I got to meet people, talk to people. My life started filling up with, with people. And I also had the idea that if I just connected with enough people, someone out there would have some sort of solution to my chronic fatigue syndrome. I knew there had to be a solution. 
the the downside of this is as I got more opportunities with women, all right, my commitment to purity and chastity and the commandments of Judaism uh, quickly attenuated and dropped away as I had opportunity. So it's a lot easier to stay righteous if you don't have the opportunity to to sin. Uh, was I ever hot for teacher? Yes, I have had an enormous number of uh, teacher fantasies, and uh, I want to want to stay away from them. <laughs> I don't want I don't want to get stuck in euphoric recall. Right, euphoric recall. You re, you recall the euphoria of the past, and you know I had a quite promiscuous life and had a lot of exciting erotic times. And those come very readily to mind, but what doesn't come as readily to mind is all the the pain and dysfunction and drama that surrounded all that promiscuity. So not not good for me to spend much time in euphoric recall. Not much good for me to spend much time thinking about all the teachers that uh I was quite hot for. And uh, with with opportunity, all right, then then my my commitment to Judaism started to attenuate, and so I was like very strongly committed. Then I started having a lot of promiscuous sex, and then I started writing on the pornography industry. Just like one thing led to another, and then suddenly I was just balls deep in you know a degenerate world, and. Uh, my my orthodox Judaism was was considerably considerably attenuated. Alternative media uh, platforms on on YouTube, on podcasts, and so on play in the amplification of this, often to the great consternation of the people that they identify in in those reports. Um, and so, mm, certainly the the. Internet and the social media platforms play a role. Also, whether you see Donald Trump as a symptom or as a catalyst for the rise in conspiracism, it's undeniable that he was a, a conspiracy-prone president. That's him appearing on uh, Infowars with Alex Jones. And uh, after his election and, and administration, Many of the figures in his cabinet ended up spiraling out into their own uh, conspiracy celebrity, like Michael Flynn, a key figure in the QAnon movement. There's also been a growth in what has been termed conspirituality, which is a somewhat surprising blend of the alternative health and wellness community um, combining with reactionary right-wing conspiracism and, and populism. Um, and this is documented on... Uh, this new book, but also a podcast connected to it, Conspirituality, which I recommend. Um, and currently in the 2024 election cycle, you have RFK Jr., um, who might be a more conspiracy-prone candidate than, than Donald Trump, um, uh, recently claiming, amongst other things, that uh, you know, 5, 5G and Wi-Fi causes cancer, vaccines cause autism, um, and he's been a anti-vax anti-vaccine advocate for the past two two decades. So hard to overstate. And yet, he is also promoted on pretty much all uh, alternative or or so-called heterodox platforms: uh, Lex Friedman, Jordan Peterson, Russell Brand, Joe Rogan, Barry Weiss, 
the list goes on. Um, so all of that might give the impression that we're in trouble or that we've got this huge rise of conspiracism. But conspiracy thinks new atheism. Okay, so I want to go to the uh, Q&A portion of this lecture at Temple University. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and I, I think part of that is the audience dynamic, right? There was a really good example recently where there was a figure in the UK, Constantine Kisson, has a podcast called Trigonometry. Um, that you can guess what the, the topic is. But um, he, he presented himself generally as like rationalist, atheist kind of guy. And then he recently had Richard Dawkins on and uh, he confronted him a little bit. It was a very weak confrontation about, you know, what about Peterson, the meaning crisis? You know, you, the new atheists didn't really give us anything and, and it's clear, you know, we need something and people are, are looking and he wrote an article about how, you know, he kind of thinks new atheism and atheism maybe in general is a bit of a dead end, right? And he said when he posted that, that he got the most amount of people unsubscribing from his content that he'd ever had, but he also got the most new subscriptions. And somebody underneath asked, well, is the second number bigger than the first one? And he said, oh, yes. And that's describing absolutely the audience capture dynamic. Now your audience is going to be increasingly, you know, pro-religious and, and, and it can work the same way for conspiracy um, things. So if your audience is giving you positive feedback, there's, there's another guy, there's a doctor called John Campbell in the UK who started out giving relatively moderate information about uh, vaccines and medicine in the pandemic. And he had a channel that was, you know, people liked it, but like not that interesting. Then he started leaning towards ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and, and then anti-vaccine. And now he has like a huge channel, hundreds of thousands uh, of subscribers, uh, I think over a million. Or, or, and, and the income uh, comes with that too. Income and attention. So I think sometimes people put too much emphasis on the, on the income part because a lot of it does just seem to be attention and praise. And if you're getting that, that does a lot of the work. So I've, I think there's that dynamic um, with, with the audience capture and, and the audience feedback. Um, and the one caveat I would add is there are people that we've covered who don't do that. They stay relatively consistent. And the difference tends to be that they actually have a kind of established role. Like Steven Pinker hasn't really changed much. Jonathan Haidt hasn't changed much. Even Oprah, right, hasn't dramatically changed in the past 10 years. So if you are have an audience and you're kind of like attached to... Right. Communities tend to discipline people, right? That's why in Orthodox Judaism or any form of Judaism, there's a very strong teaching, do not separate yourself from the community because it's taken for granted in traditional Jewish sources that people who separate from the community will diminish their Jewish commitments, their, their Jewish practice, and that their faith will start to go cold. And the human being is just wild and lazy and selfish, all right? And you, you separate him from the social cues of a high-intensity, you know, high, highly identifying in-group, and he's going to diminish his commitments. The, the only way to consistently discipline a large number of people is through them getting tied down in a specific community where people watch out and watch over each other. 
to some institution or some role, even, even if it's political pundit, like Douglas Murray, for example, hasn't gotten noticeably more extreme. He's a right-wing commentator, pretty much stayed in that vein. So I think that's part of it is like, if you have an audience in a, a like established role, and if you don't, then you kind of follow the audience dynamics more. Yeah, the importance of uh, community. All right, let's uh, just a couple more bursts here from Chris Cavanaugh. Two years ago, um, and I anticipated that that would mean that people would switch from their... Okay, so he's talking about uh, what is a guru. This is a lecture he gave at Temple University. He's fielding questions. Title of the lecture, The Rise of Secular Gurus in an Age of Conspiracy Theories. Trying to keep talking up to yeah, the point so that uh, Kavanaugh probably speaks. Like yourself and many other people that as the pandemic, you know, has become uh, like, even everybody was infected or, or, or have been vaccinated, not to say it isn't still ongoing, but, you know, it's become less of an issue than it was two years ago. Um, and I anticipated that that would mean that people would switch from their focus on anti-vaccine uh, rhetoric and, and the promotion of that content. But what seems to have happened is, yes, there is like an interest in Ukraine um, as alternatives or, or AI has, has picked up some interest. But what they've switched to is as the public health measures have been relaxed and as, you know, the, the amount of people vaccinated has kind of reached the levels that is probably likely to, um, to stay around, that they now focus on um, a kind of alternative history and the, a, a sense of grievance that they were mistreated and were kind of denigrated and they've been vindicated by subsequent evidence. The vaccines were not. And also tens of millions of people truly suffered from COVID lockdowns, right? They had very real suffering. In particular, young people, you know, lost significant opportunities and just, just living a normal life with, with friends, right? Young people in particular suffered to try to protect the health of older people. So very real suffering from lockdowns. And I'm open to supporting lockdowns, it seems to me, from the knowledge that I have that overall lockdowns were a good idea, but that doesn't diminish the sacrifice that uh, tens of millions of young people had to endure. Not see if the, um, the side effects were dangerous and, and downplayed and, and the authorities lied, right? So uh, that has become more about them being uh, kind of recognized as, as being correct. And, and that seems to be outlasting any of the policies, like, you know, I mean, in Australia, right, you had many people focus on the public health measures in Australia and say that was the beginning of an authoritarian uh, regime that would never stop, that would just keep... Remember, remember, this is a very common talking point on the distant right. One, one thing that caused me to lose respect for the intellectual quality of the distant right was this very argument that uh, COVID lockdowns were just part of an ongoing repressive streak that was just going to increase in intensity and it didn't happen, right? Lockdowns everywhere have been reduced, if not uh, completely eliminated. Putting the measures on, and it was the WEF, they're all, you know, these are the first. The other things that caused me to lose intellectual respect for the dissident right was uh, reluctance to engage with the Nathan Kofner's critique of Kevin McDonald's culture of critique, and also the embrace of baseless uh, charges that the uh, 2020 election was, was rigged against Donald Trump. So I just kept seeing area after area where the dissident right just simply did not you know, acquit itself in an intellectually respectable manner. 
also the complete ignorance of how U.S. Census statistics are developed. For example, when people fill out U.S. Census, right, and they say that, like me, I am 116th Asian. So if I were to put Asian and Caucasian on the census, the census counts me as 100% Asian. So that distorts census results, and yet you've got hundreds, thousands of people in the distant right committing themselves to an extreme brand of politics based on the idea that U.S. Census statistics are essentially divine truth, that uh, what, what the U.S. Census Bureau says about uh, you know, white people disappearing is really what, what's happening, when instead the U.S. Census statistics you know, dramatically understate the number of white people, dramatically overstate the number of non-white people. And so if you feel like you're under threat, you're going to be much more susceptible to extreme politics. So the level of, of ignorance, just people willing to you know, base their, their radical embrace of, of radical politics on statistics that they don't understand was another thing that uh, distanced me from the distant right. Steps towards authoritarian control, but it hasn't happened. The public health measures are rolled back, and, and, and yet that doesn't seem to have impacted uh, the, the conspiracy case. So this, the sad thing is, no, <laughs> but I, I hope so. I hope I'm wrong. So, yeah. Um, let's try to go with people who haven't talked uh, yet, if you don't mind. Uh, let's go to, I don't know who went first. Uh, let's go to Gabor, maybe. Yeah, thanks. Uh, have you looked at Japan, how different it is compared to U.S. and Europe, how fertile ground it is when it comes to conspiracy theories or, or gurus, or how these very popular ideas filter in the Japanese public society? To some extent, but not extensively. And I, I would say like a couple of things that are, are different is that I think conspiracy theories are, are very popular in, in Japan, just like they are everywhere. Um, and and uh, like I, I indicated earlier, there are some, there are, you know, right-wing popular figures, there are online uh, figures that have accrued followings by making dramatic claims, or and, and there is anti-vaccine sentiment uh, as well. Right? But I, I think, um, what was I going to say that I think is a, a different about the Japanese environment. It's now completely gone out of my head because I waffled too much. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I did have a thought. It might come back to me in a minute, but um, it's just floated off. So sorry about that. Thank you uh, very much. Um, yes, please go ahead. Hi, thanks. Uh, I'm Zay Mack, and I teach literature here at Temple. Um, I'm particularly interested. My question to you is, is, is that his material? So he, he gives, uh, Chris Cavanaugh gives a good summary of uh, Jordan Peterson coming up. And then I want to play you some Tucker Carlson weighing in on Coach Red Pill, the disappearing Gonzalo Lira in Ukraine. Okay. Yeah, so he has a whole bunch of multi-layered aspects to his output. And in terms of the cultural Marxists or the post-colonial Marxists, uh, post-modern Marxists, I should say, um, I think they're a key villain in his uh, like cosmology of how the world works. And they're more an instantiation of like a totalitarian impulse, which he sees haunting the world. And that... Uh, so from his point of view, that you know the bill in Canada that was going to add the transgender uh, language to the human rights protections uh, because it contained con compelled speech, it's like the first step towards the gulags. And um, so in in his in his worldview, they they're the kind of central villain, but but they're mixed in with a whole bunch of other villains. Like the the WEF is in there, which is strange because they're you know like technocratic um, like uh, capitalists really. But in in his model, they're they're kind of in league <laughs> with the postmodern uh, neo-Marxists. And, and so his, his cosmology, I think, is, is fairly uh, 
polarized against the left. So he has a much easier time at, at spotting pathologies, as he said, on, on the left and the far left. Um, and, and he tends to be more uh, permissive about like, things on the right, like he went to Hungary and accepted an award with you know, praising Orban's government. But you would think somebody concerned with totalitarianism would be concerned right, about uh, the, the democratic things being back in Hungary. Um, so he has that, but I would also say that from my reading of Peterson, like, if you focus just on the politics part, you kind of miss that he has this very, very strong uh, like kind of evolutionary religious framework where it's entwined where the Bible and Jesus are the absolute best manifestation or, or example for humanity of how to ascend competence hierarchies and status hierarchies. And so for that reason, religion and particularly Christianity is so important and tradition is so important because it allows men primarily, but, but also women to transcend competence hierarchies. And somewhere in that mix, the, the postmodern neo-Marxists are kind of attacking traditional sources of authority and, and religion and conservative values. So this is like kind of preventing people, it's leaving people psychologically bereft. So it's a very uh, heady mix of ideas. And then like people uh, mentioned, along with that is just good self-help advice and, and accurate psychology uh, descriptions, right? So it's, it's kind of like all mixed in together. And the problem is that you might watch a lecture and 80% of it is fine. And then there's just this part which, which connects to that. But um, yeah, so I don't know if I've done a great job of laying out why they are the primary villains, but they're the recurrent villains. I mean, it might be just that you know, social social justice um, or or woke stuff is uh, relatively mainstream and popular in you know, to some extent in in academia and media. So ergo, that's the enemy. Um, yeah, but he's very postmodern himself. He just doesn't yeah. recognize it. We just have. Okay, let's get a burst here from Tucker Carlson. February of 2022, the Russian military rolled across the border of eastern Ukraine, and then for the next year and a half. The American media and political establishment spent, what's fair to say, a disproportionate amount of time talking about Ukraine and America's obligation to support Ukraine, and pay for Ukraine's military and its government, and of course, support it morally and above all to hate Russia. And most Americans obeyed. Politicians wore Ukrainian flags on their lapels. American citizens put Ukrainian flags on their mailboxes and on their bumper stickers. But one thing most Americans didn't get a lot of was actual news from Ukraine. What was it like to live there? What was happening inside that country that we were supporting and paying for? Well, you couldn't really know because there's virtually no coverage of it. But on social media, there were a few people reporting in what seemed like a pretty honest way from within Ukraine. And one of them was an American citizen called Gonzalo Lira. He'd lived in Ukraine for quite some time and he posted, particularly on Twitter, his accounts of what life was like there and his view of how the war was going. And so for people who are interested in what was happening, he was worth watching. Here's one of his reports. The Russian economy is sailing on, sailing on. The European economy, people are starting to die of hypothermia in the UK because they don't have access to the cheap energy of Russia from before, see? And so everything that the West has thrown at the Russians has boomeranged right back at them. And so now they're panicking and they're trying to figure out a way out of this situation. And they figure that if they throw more tanks, it'll help. It won't help. The, uh, the Ukrainians, rather, they had like something like uh, 2,000 tanks before the start of this conflict. You think a couple of hundred now is going to help? I mean, why are they asking them? Because those 2,000 tanks are gone. That's basic, you know? And so what, uh, a couple of hundred, maybe 300 tanks, is that gonna change the outcome of the conflict? No, it won't. The Russians are just gonna destroy them. In the West, all of the uh, propaganda has said that uh, the, you know, Zelensky is a hero, a Winston Churchill figure, 
you know, and, and the Kiev regime are just angels and stuff like that. No, they're, they're bloodthirsty murderers. The Kiev regime. I'm, I'm telling you right now. So he made a couple of points. One, Russia is not losing the war with Ukraine. Russia is winning. Two, the Russian economy, despite the sanctions from the United States and Western Europe, and despite the war. So I don't know if Gonzalo Vera is being consistently an accurate, truthful voice coming out of Ukraine. But these two points that uh, Tucker is saying right now are indisputably true. Russia is winning and Europe has paid an enormous price for foregoing relatively cheap Russian energy. War has not been destroyed. The Russian economy is actually fine. And in some ways it's improving. It's becoming more independent, more commodities based. And that's an advantage for a country with a lot of commodities like Russia. Meanwhile, the U.S. economy and U.S. military power has suffered as a result of the war. Now, Lira, to the extent that people responded to him in this country, in our media, was denounced as a Russian puppet and a liar and a propagandist. But in fact, now we can admit he was right. What you just heard was true, factually true. Russia is not losing the war in Ukraine. Russia is winning. Russia's economy is fine. Ours is not. So what happened in Zalu Lira? Well, for posting that video and others like it, he was arrested by the government of Ukraine, the one that we pay for the supposed democracy that we support for moral reasons against the autocracy of Russia. He was arrested and then he was let out and then he tried to leave the country. He tried to leave Ukraine. Here's a video, his last video. This is Gonzalo Lira. I will definitely be sent to a prison labor camp where I will most certainly die. And so I decided that the smart thing was take my chances in terms of getting across the border. Right now, I'm maybe five kilometers away from the border with Hungary. Uh, over the last two days, I rode my bike just about 1,300 kilometers from Kharkov all the way here to the border. And my intention is to cross the border uh, get to Hungary, and in Hungary, I'm going to ask for political asylum. So either I will cross the border into Hungary in the next couple of hours, or I will be arrested again, and uh, God knows what will happen to me. He never made it. Five miles from the Hungarian border, five kilometers rather, from the Hungarian border, he was arrested. Gonzalo Lira remains in prison tonight, a political prisoner in a country that we were told was free, a country whose government we are still paying for. The Biden State Department is... Okay, all countries that are fighting to survive restrict some freedoms, right? Ukraine's not unique in this. Israel's not unique in this, right? Uh, U.S., right? Uh, Lincoln restricted habeas corpus during the Civil War so that Ukraine has restricted some freedoms doesn't make them a, a terror state or you know some kind of you know horrible nation or unworthy of support. I 100% have emotional support for Ukraine in this conflict with Russia. I don't want America, however, to subsidize Ukraine, but I, I feel no inclination to trash Ukraine or Gonzalo Lira. I, unlike most streamers, I don't look at people primarily in terms of good guys and bad guys. I think uh, Tucker Carlson does a lot of stuff that's extremely irresponsible and inaccurate and antisocial. He also does a lot of, you know, brave things, brings you know, brave perspectives that you would not get in the mainstream media. 
and he has a gift in, in the way he phrases things. So I think at least as long as he was on, on Fox News, he was the most interesting commentator in the mainstream media. I respect a lot of what Tucker does, and I don't respect a lot of what Tucker does. Uh, Gonzalo Lira is, don't know much about him, Stri- strikes me as very uh, flawed individual. I don't look at him in terms of good and evil. I'm sure he said some good things and some dumb things. He certainly behaved in a dumb way, thinking he could hang out in Ukraine and trash Ukraine while it's fighting for its survival with Russia. Horatius in the chat says, I remember when Gonzalo Lira wanted to start a cult of his followers in Ukraine, try to get them to move there to start a community. Laponia says, uh, Gonzalo Lira is a liar. Tucker doesn't question the absurdity of his claims. 1,300 kilometers on a bike. Right, that's Tour de France levels of fitness. He's lying. Uninterested in the fate of this American citizen. In fact, of course, they support his imprisonment. When you're not interested in your own welfare, right? The way Gonzalo Lira has conducted himself makes it very clear that he is not interested in his own welfare. So generally speaking in life, when you're not concerned about your own welfare, other people won't be concerned either. And no one in the national media seems interested in his fate whatsoever. So we thought it'd be worth speaking to his father, Gonzalo Lira Sr., who joins us now from Chile. Mr. Leary, thanks so much for joining us. Have you heard from your son? Do you Thank know where you. he is? And do you know how he's doing? Thank you, Tucker. Thank you. For the opportunity of saying what is going on with my son, Gonzalo. Today will mark the seventh full month that he's been arrested in Ukraine. He has not gone into trial. He's awaiting trial. He was appointed a court attorney that doesn't speak English. He's an Ukrainian attorney. Insofar as the U.S. Embassy, they haven't done a thing. Neither I nor his sister living in the USA, and I'm reading because I don't want to lose anything. Neither I nor his sister live. Autistic Merit's got an excellent uh, comment here. Tucker Carlson seems to either facilitate an infomercial for his guests or he attacks them with hostility. Civil but vigorous challenge, scrutiny, debate. Haven't really seen that from Tucker Carlson. That accords with uh, my memory of his shows as well. Living in the USA, I've been able to communicate with Gonzalo. He's incommunicado. The U.S. Embassy has not answered our inquiries. The embassy in Kiev never offered a defense attorney, never visited him, except for the first time, his court appointment last November 8th. The embassy has just burned out Gonzalo. An American citizen by birth is in jail because he was exercising his right of freedom of speech. His defense... You you have American-style rights, like freedom of speech, only in America. You don't have those same rights when you leave America, right? When you move communities, you have to adapt to the norms of the community you're moving into or you get into this sort of trouble. As I said before, it's in the hands of a court appointment Ukrainian attorney that doesn't speak any English. 
The USA government, with its silence in the face of this scandalous incident, suggests a degree of complicity, or at least tacit approval of Gonzalo's arrest, since nothing else convincingly explains the conspicuous lack of response. Let me just read further, if I may, Tucker. I hope you will. Gonzalo was arrested last year. On April the 15th, Good Friday, till the next Friday 22nd, for that full week, without any charges. He was simply detained. They stole all of his equipment. He couldn't continue working after he was released for at least two, three weeks, trying to obtain equipment to continue. His criticism of Zelensky Nazi regime, supported by the US government, by Mr. Biden, who makes, you know, he is making gargles, you know, that we have to defend democracy. What democracy? Ukraine has never had democracy, let alone today with this man Zelensky. He's a well-known dictator. They were going to have elections, Tucker, and they canceled those elections. During the Vietnam War, there were elections in South Vietnam, in the middle of the war, Tucker, if you remember. I do remember, I lived those years in the USA. Let me say more. Last April 27th of this year, Gonzalo put on a web video this time, and for the first time, Tucker, heavily criticizing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Four days later, the Zelensky police detains Gonzalo through that terrible, sinister Gestapo called SPU. My thinking is that the Democratic Party establishment will try to get rid of Joe Biden and shoehorn in Kamala Harris. Because Kamala Harris, make no mistake about it, she's an idiot. I mean, she is, I mean, I seriously believe that she has under 90 IQ points. I mean, she is so stupid. Isn't it odd, Tucker, that four days later, after condemning Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, Gonzalo was arrested? Why was he not detained earlier when he was let go the previous year? May okay, looking at the reader's note here on Twitter. Lira has not been tortured, neither is he in prison for the crime of criticizing Zelensky. Lira is in prison because he was arrested for multiple offenses, including sharing the location of Ukrainian troops with Russia. Lira was uh, released on bail, but then he tried to leave the country. So from May 5, pro-Russian blogger Gonzalo Lira detained in Kharkiv. Law enforcement authorities in Ukraine accuse him of supporting Russian occupation and valorizing Moscow's apparent war crimes during the war. Said to engage in attempts to discredit Ukraine's highest military and political leadership, he filmed provocative videos, showed the faces of Ukrainian soldiers, he insulted Ukraine's defenders, he posted the videos on YouTube and Twitter, he's denied Russian uh, missile strikes on Ukrainian cities, the mass killings of civilians by the invading forces. During a search of his possessions, law enforcement officials found mobile phones and a computer that contained evidence of his illegal activity. He's been remanded in custody by the court, and the investigation is ongoing. Okay.
Going to leave it there for now. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.